Hi everyone, welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget you can always find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour, every day, a general discussion of production and IT related topics. We take the time to answer your audience submitted questions and those questions are critically important because they do drive the show. Uh, what you ask is what we spend time talking about and also what you vote on. The more votes a question that someone has submitted gains, the more time we spend on it and the, you know, how um, that kind of determines the depth in which we go into answering that question. So your voting is very important just as our the questions that you submit to us, and we appreciate both sides of that. Second hour is typically a deeper dive into a topic. Today, Alex is going to be talking about Office Hours 2.5, the pending change in the show. So um, Alex will walk us through some of the coming changes. I'm sure we'll also be talking about things like our NAB coverage that's just around the corner. So good to have you here. Thank you. Um, it's time for our first hour production questions. Jason, what have we got? Ike Potter writes in from Hanover, Germany. I ran into a YouTube clip showing a setup for all sky astrophotography, a ZWO533MC all sky camera, a remotely controlled mini PC melee like driven by PoE plus switch and PoE splitter. Thoughts on that camera? I don't know if we have everybody here does much astrophotography, at least I haven't heard somebody talking about it. It's a fascinating field, as you can imagine, the people who do that have pretty exacting needs, um, you know, not much light out in the universe, at least compared to what we have on the Earth with the sun hitting us all the time, which means that long exposures are the order of the day. And if you haven't done any astrophotography, uh, as that long exposure happens and the Earth continues on its rotation, things can blur and and kind of not become what you want, which is as clear a point source photo of each little speck of light that you can get. And because of that, the rigs for doing astrophotography are usually very precise and very carefully controlled so that you can track the movement of how the sky compared to the Earth's rotation fixes. And so it sounds like this is an interesting uh, way. Uh, YouTube clips and the people who do astrophotography are real precise about it. I mean, it's a, it's a fun field for the people who love it. They absolutely love it. Uh, I don't know anything about this particular rig. It's interesting that they're using a power over Ethernet switch and a splitter, and they've got something going on, hopefully to advance the state of that art. Um, maybe the next time you come in, we'll have somebody here who knows a little more about that. But Ike, right now, I think that's the most I can do on the subject, and I don't think anybody else is raising a hand. So try again occasionally when we have bigger panels, and maybe somebody will know more specifically about that thing. I hope it turns out to be great, and if you go in that direction, we'd love to see the results. Let's go on to the next question. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana writes in, anyone else had problems with the screws falling out of the small rig mobile video cage for the iPhone 14 Pro Max? Support is slow, and I'd rather just order the screws to fix it at this point so I can keep trucking. I'm missing two of the three on the back side of the rig. Ah, little tiny screws in the model computer. We were having a chat about that before uh, on the setup of the show. Nigel, help us out here. So I don't know the answer to this question, but I wanted to point out I ordered one yesterday. So had you put this question in yesterday, I might not be getting one today. So I'll let you know what happens. Oh, there you go. Uh, Jason. So um, small rig actually does have a kit. If you look way down in accessories, you can get a camera screw kit. And if memory serves, it also includes just about every every screw that is part of 
their rig, they actually don't use very many different screws. Um, to make sure that you don't have any more fallouts, you need to get some Loctite and you need to just crank those screws in so that, um, yeah, they, they won't come out again. Yeah, Loctite is a fun substance. Loctite and uh, little tiny split ring washers, if you want to go in that direction. But things have gotten so small on there. We were chatting about it before, so I pulled out one of the tubes of... Uh, I have a little tiny power screwdriver, and it comes with 60 different tips. And it just boggles my mind that there are now so many different kinds of small, highly machined components that sometimes are holding things like the cases of our laptops together. It's fun. John, you had a thought? Yeah, I just wanted to mention, be careful which Loctite you use. Use blue, preferably to red, because red's permanent. And if you ever need to take it apart, you won't be able to with red. Ah, oh, there you go. So that's food for thought and words for the wise. Let's move on to the next question. I wasn't going to mention that, but he's not wrong. Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana writes in, stolen question from Mark Adonis, uh, if you were to go to college tomorrow and become an editor, would you choose to take a computer science course, for example, programming, or an art history course, assuming you had to choose just one? Oh, that's a fascinating question. Let's start, John, you were just talking, so let's go to you, and then we'll go to John Prado after that. So I think in my case, I would choose art history, and the reason for that is not obvious. And that is, Well, maybe it is. It's that... Technical stuff comes easier for me, so I'm going to choose the one that I'm least experienced with. And so, in order, one of the things whenever I took up photography was it was difficult for me to tell stories with my images. Technically, they looked good, but they weren't creative. And so, editing would be similar to that. Uh, I could understand and grok the ability, the, 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 the keyboard shortcuts, how to do the edits. But what I don't have is a good background in what makes good art. And that's where I would focus my studies. Everybody's going to be different. So focus on what where your gaps are. And so if you're really technical, focus on the softer skills. If you've got really good, strong, soft skills, focus on the technical aspects. Nice answer. John Preto. Uh, since ChatGPT7 will be perfect at programming, then art history is the choice here because you need to learn about color theory and all those things that are artistic that will serve you much better in editing than computer science will. I mean, ChatGPT is not going to be answering, your design really is terrible. <laughs> it's Jason Beige. Having taken classes at the college level in both subjects, I think I can safely tell you for the same reason as John that programming has always been harder for me. And um, there's no way around it other than to do it. I can sit through an uninspired CS lecture and I cannot sit through an uninspired art history lecture. That's an interesting perspective. I kind of agree with it. I will say that, Mike, you know, I, since I do a lot of editing now, and I didn't when I was coming up, in fact, I had no training in it in my original days, it was interesting. The, the evolution that my thinking went through as an editor as I was coming up, I had to get the mechanical stuff and the which button do I push to get this result stuff kind of out of my head before I could ever really settle down and start to edit aesthetically, if you want to apply that term to it. 
Because at some point, it's like a piano playing or when you're learning to fit your fingers into the chords and you have to think about that, it takes you into a different space as when you, that is so automatic that you don't have to think about that and you can move on to the higher level functions of interpretation and, you know, attack and all those things that good musicians really concentrate on after they learn the basic skills. And I think to me, this feels a little bit the same way you got to get the technical stuff to become almost invisible to you. And once you do that, then your mind is freed up to really think about the why am I doing it this way and is there a better way to do it as opposed to how am I doing this and is there a faster way to do it? Those are two different thought processes in my mind at least. Let's go on to the next question. Uh, Mike Edwards from Brooklyn, New York writes in, Morning, guys. Uh, Thoughts on the new Flux keyboard. Is this the next step in keyboarding or is it just a fad? John Pewitt, let's go. So I've been around IT for quite some time. uh, And I have to say keyboards like this and and just I took a look at it. It, It's basically has a little screen on every key. Uh, This is something over $500 Australian. Uh, I saw the price. It's on Kickstarter. Um, This is going to be a very niche product. The mass market is going to need those keyboard prices to come way down before it becomes appealing to them. And in addition, having keys that change their colors or their shapes or their functions is not going to appeal to the mass market because most people need a J key to be a J key or an A key to be an A key. We don't need it to be changing around. Gamers, maybe. Uh, editors, possibly. But you're at, you know the bulk of keyboards are used by people that are in the office and are at home, and they're not going to be interested in this kind of product. JJ McKenna. So looking at the, at the form and function of it, I think that the function is fascinating in that it reports to possibly have interface changes, modules that you can add to it, <clears throat> which now most of us take care of with like a Stream Deck, Stream Deck or a different kind of controller. And usually when I'm looking at, when I'm working at a computer, I'm not looking down. I'm not looking at my computer. That's what this does. This, this, this interface is very beautiful. So if you're looking at your keyboard, then you probably aren't doing a lot of work. And this, this cries out for someone who wants to showcase what they have rather than actually getting to work. As far as getting to work, uh, this this is uh, the the additional modules being able to modify what you have in front of you and how you're doing that. Um, if it's more compact and pert in its function, uh, that is to say, if it if it draws from less resources on your computer, whereas having multiple peripherals does draw more resources on your computer, then that's nice. Uh, it might make your your performance and your your day to day workflow uh, more you know, faster, uh, more convenient. But otherwise. I, uh, I think the price point is is too high versus what we can right now do by adding additional prefer- peripherals. I'm really enjoying this question. This is leading some great discussion. John Preto, you're next up. This is a shiny new object. This is a fad. And Mike, once you and I get our Neuralink's keyboard, we won't need any keyboards anymore. Ooh, does this require drilling into the cortex, the cerebral cortex? Anyway, we'll figure that out later. Jason, go ahead. Um. I'm remembering the Sky Mall magazine that everybody inevitably at one point went through and um, couldn't help but but like gawk at in an airplane. 
Does anyone remember the laser keyboard that like, you know, it was a little thing and then it would project the keyboard onto the desk? And it was a really cool idea, but it never worked. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Function did not follow form. Uh, Nigel. Oops, you're muted, Nigel. Oh, sorry. As a member of the Kickstarter Victim Support Group, I would tell you that this is one of those things that you buy, that when it's finally delivered, you don't remember why you wanted it. Ah, uh, interesting perspectives. Well, I hope, Mike, that helped you uh, get a little sense of it. Uh, Kickstarter is an interesting place out there. There's a lot of good ideas and a lot of ideas that aren't so good. It's gonna Time will tell whether which category this one falls into. Let's go to our next question. Brian Sean from Sydney, Australia, writes in, Sprig Cable Management was a great find at Cinegear last year. With NAB approaching, what products have you found useful from smaller vendors? Uh, Jason, start us off. I, don't know, I never know this in advance, but if you're asking about past questions, um, I found a really great vendor that I've used in the past for, um, for Pelican Foam. He used water you know, water jets to cut Pelican foam. And it was expensive, but it, it made really solid cutouts. Now I, I have a laser cutter and I can actually, I can do the foam myself, but boy, was it cool. Yeah, you know, that's the fun of LA, NAB, at least in part for me, has always been the little peripheral booths around the outside. These tend to be, they're not always, but they tend to be small entrepreneurs who want to come into a big trade show like that, but don't have more money than, than uh, the basic, basic booth. And uh, so I always roam the outsides. And I remember one year I came across a vendor who was doing a, a new kind of tape, and it was... Um, I'd call it a stretchy rubber tape that was designed to do waterproof fixes on things like hoses. And I had never seen anything like that. I was there on the last day of NAB. So I said, you want to take all your samples back or, you know, will you take a $10 bill in exchange for a couple of rolls? And he said, yeah, sure. What the heck? And so we did that. And I played with those things for fun. I found both that they were useful in certain circumstances, but they failed terribly in other circumstances. So you never can tell what you're going to run into. I just do like the peripheral booth folk, whoever they are. I think, uh, you know, the fact that you have a dream and a product is a good thing. John Predator, you had a thought? Late 80s, early 90s, this was the, the reason to go to Comdex to find those small vendors around the periphery of the show. Those days are long gone, and hence so is Comdex. And so these days of finding interesting things now at trade shows is, is diminishing going to zero because of the Internet. We find out way before and more interesting things on the net than you're ever going to find in a trade show. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. Let's move on to our next question. Jason Robert Shaw from Sarasota, Florida, writes in, after 44 years bringing science and nature into our homes, David Suzuki is retiring from hosting The Nature of Things on CBC, the longest-running science series. Did anyone watch the show and have any thoughts? Could he be a guest for Grey Matter? That sounds fascinating. I was not aware of him. JJ, do you know something about this? Well, I, I was addicted to uh, PBS uh, as a kid. <laughs> So watching lots of science was always fascinating. And Dr. Suzuki, listening to a interview that he gave recently about leaving, um, leaving that, that post, uh, mentioning that the show primarily was about the producers and producers putting together a show and, and his frustration with seeing a lot of the, the same issues today that existed back then that he covered, which included climate issues, climate conversations. Um, to Whit regarding uh, Dr. Krasny, 
he could make a, anyone fascinating. Uh, and it has to do with the interview style. Like having having met Dr. Krasny and listening to him, you know, here in the Bay Area for for decades, uh, just you know, anyone would be absolutely fascinating. Finding finding the the details of a person's life, the interview process with uh, a Grey Matter show is is absolutely worth it for anyone to to be arrive. Yeah, I think there's a a bunch to that. I have done maybe three or four hundred interviews, and I consider myself at this point barely in the medium range because it's just such a subtle art to to dig into somebody and bring them out and when you see masters like Michael Krasny and other folks who work on the national level it is it's almost supernatural how they can hone in on a point get somebody to reveal something that you never knew was there and, and you if you you wouldn't have even known to ask the question let alone dig down to that one little bit of nugget that is really useful good interviewers are worth their weight in unobtainium as far as I'm concerned and there it's a great thing let's go on to the next question unobtainium not the things that we will find at NAB Ron <laughs> Hofsey writing in from Tromsø Norway what are the best cinema theaters in Los Angeles um, is the Amazon theater in Culver the one we're probably going to visit only one Oh, that's a tough one. I have not been to Los Angeles to go theater hopping a lot. I know that my friends who live in Los Angeles, there are a few theaters. And I'm thinking of one gentleman in particular. He is a movie absolute nut. And he, like Alex, and Alex has articulated the same thing. He has the theater that he wants to see this format of the movie in. And he has the seats that he will accept to watch a movie in that particular venue. And there's so many now, you know, there's all these different formats from widescreen and, and Dolby surround and, and DHX. There's just all sorts of different kinds of presentations in large movie theaters. So you might be watching something in 3D. You might be watching something in uh, one of those super wraparound screen things. And, and the people who are really serious about movies have pre preferences for all those things. And I just don't know Los Angeles as a market for theaters well enough to make a comment on that. John Pewitt, do you have some... Thoughts? Just just one thought is if I was going to L.A. and I want to check out a theater, it would probably be where the Academy Awards are presented. Oh, um, the Dolby Theater there? Yeah, n just because of the historical significance of that theater, more so than the, vi than the visual quality. I don't know what the quality is, but I'm imagining it would be pretty good. So that's my thought. Yeah, I think that's more traditional stage theater than a movie theater. I'm for some reason I'm remembering from watching some of those conversations ArcLight, the name. There may be an ArcLight theater in LA. I could be getting this 100% wrong, but I do know there are theaters among the cinephile community in Los Angeles who are 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 they're praised for the fact that they are very specific about getting their projection technology, their sound technology and everything else tuned up to the maximum that Hollywood allows. And since they're adjacent to Hollywood or maybe in it, uh, they take that stuff very seriously, the playback of motion pictures. Uh, sorry, I can't go farther than that, Ronnie, but uh, let us know what you find in terms of if there's a wow, that theater is great in Los Angeles. We'd love to know about it. Next question. Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington writes in, I need to set up an Apple M1 laptop to use Time Machine on a two-drive Synology NAS running RAID 1. Do I have to format the drives in an Apple format? It's on the same network going over IP. Nigel's going to start us off. Nigel? So I have a Synology, I have a five-disc system, and it's set up in RAID 5, not RAID 1, but 
but here's what I've done, and uh, Jason may be able to fill in my gaps when I get this wrong. But it's set to the BF, what is it? The file system is BTRFS file system, which seems to be the file system that works best and fastest across Synology. Then follow the instructions which we will post in the chat of how to set up uh, a shared file, name it for the um, for the time machine, and then connect to that. Don't put encryption on. Uh, the other thing they say, don't use the recycling bin. And then from your Mac, you probably have to SMB into that drive and to get that going. You don't need to set up any special file system for it. It will work. What is very strange about it is when you're when you normally plug in your time machine, it puts a drive on your desktop. At least it does for me. This won't. It'll just happen in the background if you set it up correctly. Nice. John Pewitt. Nigel has uh, pretty much everything down right, but I wanted to add a little bit more technical to it because I think it's kind of interesting how it actually works in the background. That is, when you're passing the data over, it comes across as packets. Uh, so it's not really in a formatted type uh, unless you're using a direct mapping onto your computer like an iSCSI, uh, in which case then formatting can be important, uh, but then you would format that from your computer. What happens is it passes the data from your computer to the computer built into the Synology, and the Synology writes that to the disk as opposed to your computer writing directly to the disk. So that's why the format of the receiving in isn't as important as uh, being compatible with Apple as it is with being compatible with the Synology. Nice, nice explanation. Jason Bache. Uh, hi, sorry, there's a phone going off in the background and I can't stop it right now, but I'll, I'll answer as best I can with that nice little bird in the background. Um, when you have a two-drive Synology, I'm not sure if this is still the case, but my immediate thought is you need to create a share that is dedicated specifically for the time machine. And in file system, under advanced settings, I would not use SMB, I'd use AFP, and I would... Um, there is a way to um, advertise Bonjour over the network that Time Machine gets really weird without, and it has to do with the way that the indexing occurs on modern Macs. Make sure that you have that, and, and you should be fine. And the share should immediately pop up once it's being advertised over Bonjour. John Pewitt, you had a re recall? Just one last thing, uh, something I've noticed with my uh, Synology backups, you can't attach two Macs to the same share. So just a heads up on that. You can only have one Mac. You know, I really love office hours. Where else can you go just quickly and toss in a question and get this level of fabulous technical support? This is this is great. Hopefully, Vincent, this helps you. Uh, at least it'll give you some pathways to go down and explore to get this right. Let's go on to our next question. Eric H., writes in from Rhode Island, for those that do conference AV, after last week's experience with in-house AV providers, I'm taking over audio as well as video. Is large conference hotel facility house audio generally a mono XLR wall input or a stereo pair? Nigel. I think it exactly depends on which facility you're in. So having done a few ones in the last few months, they go from one end and one extreme to the other. I will tell you, though, that the only thing you have to make sure you do is go visit and check what they have. Because if you want to use their facilities, uh, 
they may not have been used massively since COVID. We used one site that, that hadn't even plugged or turned any of this on since COVID. It had been off for two years. There was no one who knew how to use the technology. When they called in the support team that from the service they used, they didn't know how to use it. So, uh, you know, whenever you can bring your own stuff, when you want to use theirs, you must check it. Things aren't working. Things will be different. Um, now, some of the hotels, depending on what they are, will be very difficult about you uh, playing with their stuff. Uh, we did a conference and fundamentally had to rewire the whole system just to make it work. And then they accused us of doing it wrongly. And we actually almost sent them a bill for the amount of work we did. Yeah. Jason. I have never used house sound in any conference space. I have never trusted it. And as such, it has never failed me. I have I can tell you so many disasters about hotel conference space to the point where I've had to go into their networking cabinets to get what we were by contract uh, supposed to be getting. So trust none of it. It doesn't matter what's signed. It doesn't none of that matters. You, you need to be there. I don't know, a week before or a couple days before or enough time before so that if everything that you're relying on fails, you can still do what you need to do. Yeah, I'm going to support what everybody here has said. That's been my experience, too. You walk into something and, and you know, often it's just an XLR to one location. And so you only have one mono line. Sometimes you'll see a little uh, soldered together patch bay there with maybe a couple of RCA inputs for stereo, particularly up on the speaker's podium and things like that. Sometimes you'll have a fancy podium with a lot of connectivity at the podium for putting in audio signals and stuff like that. It, you know, particularly after COVID, when things kind of shut down for such a long time. A lot of those house engineers went off and did other things. So it's really, uh, you're taking your life into your hands, going in and expecting a system in a hotel, ballroom, or anything similar to be at high spec these days. And I agree with everybody who said, you know, don't trust Verify. Go in and make sure that you do your, your pre-inspection and anything you need to feed into that system, make sure that when you plug it into point A and you are requiring it to get to point B, that it actually does that and somebody hasn't run a cart over the, the line or done something in the wall to mess it up in the, in the interim. Let's go on to our next question. My last thought on that is that no one will remember who hired the hotel. Uh, they will totally remember who hired you. So yeah, that's, just keep that in mind. Douglas true. Carmichael uh, writes in, with the realism and fidelity of modern guitar amplifier simulation, fractal audio systems range, for example, do you think we will still see a market for traditional tube amplifiers in the future? Yeah, I would guess so. Jason, you want to you wanna weigh in on it? Okay. Tube amplifiers will never leave this world, Okay. Have you seen the, the $3,000 like contraptions? They have everything but a Jacob's Ladder, like running the arc up there. But, you know, it may, totally, it's about the sound. It's about, you know, those even ordered harmonics that are just oh so pretty. Yeah, they're not going anywhere. <laughs> it's, it's so interesting. I live in the world of that a little bit with my Universal Audio Apollo Solo because it has, in digital simulation, thousands of components. So, you know, I want this to sound like the compression from an LA-2A or I want this to sound like uh, a Manly Vox box or something. And it's got those simulations in there. Um, and 
I think for people who are interested in particular sounds that have particular colors, they can do a darn good job. Is that the same as plugging a tube amplifier into the system? You know, there's a lot of debate, and I think um, there is organic real and there is simulation of real. At this point, the second has not entirely replaced the first, and I think it's going to be a long time before it actually does. So you can get close, and you can get very pleasing sounds out of these things that simulate classic arrangements of things like tubes, and maybe that's all you need. Uh, but is it exactly the same? I'm not sure it is. Uh, I'll leave that debate for the musicians and the people who really are deeply concerned about that. Let's go to the next question. TJ Asher from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and also on our back end, I have an ancient 2009 uh, 15-inch MacBook Pro with a Core 2 Duo Intel processor. What could it be used for nowadays? Is it worth doing anything with it, or should I just recycle it? John Pewitt. So I have an ancient uh, 2013 MacBook Pro, 13-inch. Uh, uh, I use it for an audio input for Discord. So whenever I need to stream audio into Discord, I have it routing from my iPad through a mixer into the MacBook and do that. I think you can do anything uh, that'll actually run on the uh, iPad. Uh, I mean, on the uh, on the MacBook. But uh, the one thing I wouldn't do is browse the web or do internet surfing on that. Hmm. It's from a different era in security, I would imagine. Jason. I'd say throw an SSD in there because they're cheap and easy in the 2009. You can practically do it with a little more than a $3, um, what is it? No, actually, that's going to be using double zero Phillips. So it's, it is practically already there. Uh, get an SSD and use it for companion, and you will have the most perfect dedicated companion machine you'll ever see. Yeah, I used to take mine and do things like turn it into a dedicated teleprompter machine. If, if it's a laptop is still has any utility in there, there are tasks like that that, oh, it'd be nice to have one in there all the time. Uh, do check the battery occasionally, make sure it hasn't swollen up and <laughs> gone crazy because some of the old machines do get into that area. Next question. Josh Kaufman from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania writes in, what are the panel's preferences on remote access solution for both headless workflows and remote presenter kits? Jason? Um, headless workflows. Okay, if you don't know every piece about certificates and about firewalls and the ways to secure things so that they don't get taken away from you, it's not worth it. It, it, to me, it's that simple. It's not worth it. Fair enough. Don't forget, you drive this show with your questions and things like that. Well, that, not things like that, with that. So if you haven't put in questions, if you have anything you'd want to uh, want us to deal with here, your questions and your voting on the questions are critical to how the show operates. So this is a great chance. We've got some tremendous technical chops here on the panel, as you've been hearing for the first half of the show, uh, first half of the first hour. Uh, and we encourage you to put more questions in and let us know what you're interested. This is a great day to get your questions answered and vote on those so that we know what is most important to you. Uh, let's go on to the next question. Jonas Tattel from Stuttgart, Germany, writes in, so can you use your 220-volt chargers in a 110-volt country? And what adapters does one need in the United States? Nigel. 
So we are excited that Jonas will be with us next week and in Vegas. And uh, we have, I believe, an exciting weekend of uh, Vegas planned for him before NAB. So uh, I suspect Jonas knows the answer to this question, but uh, it really depends on the adapter and the device you're using. So most Apple uh, devices are rated for both. If you look at that really small print on the brick that comes with your device, it will tell you. If not, you need to bring with yourself one of these lovely adapters that uh, goes to between Germany and the US. You can buy them in every airport, a bus station, and uh, all over Vegas, particularly if you're staying in a hotel. You can buy one of these in the gift shop of the hotel for probably $400. You will find <laughs> a slightly cheaper one at duty-free in your airport. Um, if you're staying in a very small bijou hotel, they may have one that they will lend you in reception for $50. But uh, mostly the high-end devices, the only thing you really have to be careful of is if you're bringing devices across where the frequency is different. So sometimes there's a different hertz of the electricity, so be sensitive to that. But mostly the modern stuff you've got, I'm sure if you look at the small print, will all say that it covers both. Jason? Yeah, the only thing that I'll add to that is in the United States, it matters a lot less the voltage than the AC frequency, as Nigel said. So AC means alternating current, and in the United States, it alternates, the anode and the cathode alternate at 60 times a second. So make sure that your equipment can handle that, and you probably are good. Yeah, because in Europe, isn't it 50 in some, many of the places, 50 hertz AC? So, yeah, you're going to have a little discrepancy there that you have to deal with. Uh, I will say that somebody, I was talking to, was it a bell captain or something? And he said, oh, wait, you're talking to your friend about the fact that you don't have one of those. We got about 150 in the back. It was a particular cable. And it's, I guess people leave this kind of thing in hotel rooms constantly. Little adapters, wall warts, power things, and they often have dozens and dozens of them. So... I'm not saying it's always going to work, but maybe a tip to the bellman might uh, might help you out of your problem. Nigel? I was just going to say be, be a little sensitive to stuff left in hotels, um, particularly uh, electronics equipment. If it's a cable, it's probably fine, but it might not be. But be, just be careful to stuff left behind. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that 100%. I've just seen, you know, oh, which vinyl MacBook do you have? Yeah, we've got a power supply for that. Uh, John Preto? Uh, Giannis, you're not going to have any time in your room and you won't need that because we're going to have you out and about. <laughs> you're going to be run ragged, Jonas. That That's good. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Alex is here. Alex, are, hey. do you want to, do you want to step in and? Nope. No, I'm nope. just going to keep on. Keep on keeping keep on. All right. Stay as a panelist if you're okay. Good to see you. Absolutely fine. Yeah. Whatever works. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Right, Ronnie Hofsey in Tromsø, Norway, writes in, uh, "What would be your favorite shop similar to B and H in NY, but located in the general Los Angeles area?" Jason, take it away. Okay, um, Alex and Nigel will definitely have more along the lines of B and H because there's nothing like B and H anywhere in the world. If you're a, if you live in Norway. What you need to do in Los Angeles is experience food trucks, because I'm guessing there aren't nearly as many in Norway. Ah, that's an interesting uh, diversion. Nigel, your thoughts? I, I was uh, I don't know LA well. I'm sure Alex couldn't give you a better uh, place than I can, but you did say B&H. And I'm in New York in a couple of weeks, and I'm trying to decide the size of suitcase I'm taking with me, because there's nothing quite like a few days spent in B&H. 
do the words steamer trunk have anything to <laughs> resonate with you? Alex? Every trip to B&H is expensive for me. So so I, I used to stay actually at the New Yorker uh, that's right. That's only a block away from B&H because it was right next to B&H. <laughs> so, so it was uh, so so B&H is its own, its own little world uh, in L.A. The places that I would I would recommend is Location Sound. It, it's just a tiny little store. They, they do a lot of rental. So the rental area is bigger. The the. Uh, but they have a little sales area and it has just all these little things for location sound that I just don't, you just get to touch them and look at them and all the little things that you need. It's really a great place to check out. Um, it's in Burbank. And then also um, the film tools. So film tools is uh, it's all grip, but it also has some camera. It has a lot of little features. It's not of course as big as B and H, uh, but it doesn't, it's, it's more like all the pro stuff at B and H all in one place. And again, just an incredible treasure trove of, of grip uh, gear and camera gear and lighting gear. Uh, those would be the two big ones that I would recommend. And I don't think that they're actually, they're probably 15, 20 minutes apart. Alex nailed it. Those are the places that I would hit first in Los Angeles too. Let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, the newly released DM3 mixer has only one rotary encoder for all channel functions like the TF series. How fluid is the Yamaha one-knob interface to work with in the heat of a live event? Jason, do you have experience in that? I've run enough mixers to tell you that if it only has one knob and you're talking about the heat of a live event, I think you answered your own question. If your only job is to dial exactly one thing, you'll be just fine. Other than that, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, the one knob interfaces are really good for things like what we do here. You know, I'm, I'm at my desk behind a Universal Audio Apollo Solo. It has one big knob. It, that knob can go into different modes, but in terms of fiddling with menus and things like that, I don't really want to do this. And a good uh, designed interface that has just a couple of things to control and they all get controlled the same way, these work really well, but I wouldn't try to mix a live concert on them at all. Uh, next question. Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois writes in, TV action shows imply facial recognition is a common technology quickly identifying a subject's name, address, and firstborn from a windshield headshot at a toll booth. <laughs> Will you shed <laughs> thoughts on the current state of facial recognition? You forgot from five miles away in a moving vehicle. Uh, John Pewitt. So this is a very interesting topic. Um, I think it really is situational it, based on a lot in cases of where what country you're in. I understand China has some really amazing high recognition facial ID uh, recognition software that is used to track their citizens uh, very effectively. Nineties uh, uh, in the ninety percentile range. Uh, whereas in the United States, I think we're we're hitting the eighties. Uh, I think we had some huge setbacks by rolling it out way too early and causing a lot of false positive identifications, especially with uh, racial minorities in our country. Uh, that has really set back the technology and the useful uh, use of it in a lot of ways. Uh, a lot of police are trying to roll it out under the radar and not. Uh, disclosing their use of it. And I think that also in a democratic society causes a lot of issues. Um, but, uh, you know, from a technical aspect, I just think we're not there yet uh, in this country. Jason Bates, your thoughts? Okay, on TV action shows, I think it's a cheat. They just do that because it's fast and it's an easy plot point. 
the truth is there are absolutely databases that if any camera gets a clean shot of you, it could absolutely identify you. The lie is that every law enforcement uh, can do that on anyone at any time with any resolution image. Nigel Dessau. I think it's all about how much money you have to spend. So if you have a huge amount of money to spend and therefore you're probably a government, it's probably much better than you think it is. It's much more inclusive. It's much faster. But there still are like two or three uh, pieces of science problem that uh, searching through the database will probably take a lot longer than you think it and much longer than they should to. And to Jason's point, they don't have the time for that. Um, the, the other thing they can't do as well is the magical magnification and adding detail that wasn't there before piece, which I think is always my favorite thing, where they zoom in on something um, and suddenly get details that the original shot didn't have. But if you, you come from a country which is completely covered by CCT cameras, which something like the UK now is, you would be amazed at uh, probably how far they've got. Nigel, you're just failing to use the magic word enhance. When you say that, doesn't it just immediately yeah, you get need sharp the as a grid, the XY coordinates, saw, or the I, trick? I saw something the other day. I don't know what it was. Someone was looking at a picture on a laptop on a show, and the person says, can you zoom in on that? So he just pushed the laptop towards his face, which I thought was the correct <laughs> John, odds. John, uh, I'm sorry, Alex. Yeah, I mean, the, the technology is pretty far along. Uh, it is it is not as good as the what the TV shows, but it's better in some places. Uh, so, for instance... Uh, within four feet of a camera it, through sunglasses, prescription sunglasses, it's pretty accurate uh, for iris scans. Um, and that's been, that's 25 year old technology. Uh, also um, heat scans. So uh, if you, you can identify someone by their, the heat, the heat signature of their face turns out to be um, unique. And so, uh, so about 50 feet, <laughs> 50 feet, uh, you can uh, identify someone by their heat, their heat signature. So, um, so anyway, so those are those are things that, that are then that's, again, those are all 25 year old technologies. So you can get a sense of where it's gone, the real power that most governments have, and some some individuals have when they spend too much money with an Israeli company is, uh, is metadata. So metadata and the data on your phone is the thing that really, when it comes to a lot of the you know, anti-terror, you know, counter-terrorism and so on and so forth is really knowing who's talking to who. Um, and it's not so much listening to them. I think a lot of people think that that's the, that's the big thing. It's knowing who's connected to who. So if I see that you're, you know, it's once you've done something that I know is bad, being able to go all the way back to before you even thought of doing that, before you even knew that you wanted to do something bad, I can see everybody that you talk to, you know, and and then figure and then kind of build a network out of that. And that's really why that hoovering that the NSA wants to do is valuable to it is because it can go back in time and uh, and then go forward. So you go back to where you met somebody that wasn't very good, then go forward and look at everybody that they were talking to and you, you're able to build massive nets. But that's really makes more of a difference in our society as far as security than most of the camera technology. And John Preto. You guys didn't see me shaking my head. Everything that Alex said is absolutely right. I used to work for a, a technology company providing surveillance systems here for for casinos in Las Vegas. Uh, there was a company here that was uh, that was funded by InQtel, which is the CIA's venture fund. And they created a product called Nora, which is non-obvious relations. And so they knew that uh, somebody went to high school, like a dealer and a player went to high school together. If they were roommates together, they scan all the license plates coming in property and their facial recognition is amazing. They, they track all the traffic in and out of the casinos. Oh yeah. So there's some amazing stuff going on in Las Vegas. 
Uh, let's go on to the next question. Bob Sturdivant writes in from San Antonio. I'm looking to attach some different cameras, Insta360 and GoPro, to dogs. Any best or stay away from practices and rigs the panel would suggest? Yeah, don't get near the mouth of a nasty dog. Uh, Alex Lindsay. Yeah, there's some shoulder mount rigs that you can put on your dog, and that's really what you're going to want because it'll it'll stabilize it both, um, you know, as far as how it's going to rotate forward and back and around. So it's a it's one of the shoulder mounts. It's kind of the, what you see on a service dog, and so um, those are going to uh, attach it. And they actually make ones with uh, camera attachments <laughs> to, to on both under and over. And so that's what you're that's what you're looking for. Nice, uh, Morgan. Uh, next question. Hey, that's my line. Morgan Price writing in from Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. After this week's Descript second hour, how are panelists using or thinking of using Descript? Uh, John Preto is going to start us off. John? We were early adopters of Descript. We played with it. And what we found was our editors could do their job way faster in their tools that they're normally used to using. Would some of those AI tools eventually find themselves in the Final Cut and the other tools? That's exactly what's going to happen. But having our editors go out and to use another tool and then bring that back in was cumbersome. So we ended up not using it anymore. Alex, we're really looking at using it for a first pass for for um, for for gray matter. And so basically, what we're looking at there is is being able to, uh, you know, what we're interested in is uh, being able to just put that into this descript and and basically cut out all the things that we we want to get rid of make any edits so and so forth and then send that out to logic to have it kind of finished and so most of the edits will all be kind of managed uh, we're going to start experimenting with that we're not going to implement it immediately but we're going to start experimenting with it i think that the possibilities of using ai for this down the road of being able to summarize uh, even you know create sections like I, you know i think that i don't know if Descript can do this yet, but we really started imagining the idea of it being able to just go through and output all of the individual chapters, like all the questions individually, just just grab them, each one of them, and then being able to export them out. And uh, we think that there's a lot of opportunities. And then just the ability to publish to lots of formats all at one time. So it's going to be interesting. Yeah, if, if you missed, I think it was, was it last Wednesday? Incredible. Or? No, it was last, is it just this Monday, I think. Oh, Monday, and okay. Just an incredible hour. It's one of our, I think probably one of our top 10 hours ever uh, was was going through that and just really mind-blowing. I thought I would highly recommend checking it out. Yeah, it feels like the future is heading faster than I thought it was. Let's move on to the next question. Tommy Chance from St. Paul, Minnesota writes in, would it be possible to have a fail-safe audio stream set up in case of a video glitch? I'm thinking of a live podcast scenario. Alex? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we do with office hours and that we could be what we're looking at doing again with um, with Michael Krasny's uh, gray matter is a ice cast. So being able to take that that audio and stream it out directly is something that we're that we're pretty interested in. So would you have parallel audio? Thing yeah, that's just, going just out parallel audio. So if, if anything goes wrong with the video, the audio is still going out. And the main reason we're doing that is because in Makana, we can take an audio input. We can say, here's a link. So if you go to our mobile version of of office of, of Makana for for the show and you're in the mobile version you'll see a little audio link in the upper uh, left and if you click on that you'll listen to it that's a nice cast server so that's actually um, being managed slightly differently interesting Jason you had a question yeah the only thing that I would add to that is that audio hijack makes this so incredibly simple that anyone who's ever had to stream audio for live 
well, you'll you'll look at it and go, oh, that was it. I used to have a Winamp plugin that made this way more complicated. Alex, I, I know you probably don't have the statistic off the top of your head, but is there an, you have a general idea of how many people listen versus watch the show every day? You know, I I, uh, I think it's about uh, I think that compared to the YouTube stream, I think it's about twenty percent the size, I believe. But I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure. I haven't looked at it recently. Yeah, that's it's just interesting to me. I've had a very positive experience. The times that I've been on the road or someplace and I wasn't able to be involved in this show directly, I've listened to it. And it really is interesting that this is a hybrid that you really can listen to this and becomes very much like a radio show. It's very satisfying that way. And we're just working out some of the business things that we'll do right after NAB. I don't want, I'm just trying to get to NAB. <laughs> so, but right after NAB, probably in May, you'll see us release the office hour, the app. And the app is really just there to make it an app experience of listening to that. And the nice thing about it is, is that it plays in the background. It does all the things that you don't really get with a web page. Um, so it's going to be a lot more stable to listen to. And, and we should have it out first or second week of May. Exciting news. Thank you. Let's move on to the next question. Morgan Price writes in from Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. What 4K capture device do you recommend, SDI or HDMI for a Mac, to bring Mimo Live or other software in? And Jason. Mm, you know, with very few exceptions, I've pretty much always used a web presenter and pretty much always been happy with it. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, you'll end up, you can get an uncompressed signal if that's what you want. I, I, and I haven't tried it with Memo Live specifically, but uh, the decklink cards are, you know, so you're looking for a 12G decklink card or a 6G decklink card um, that's going to allow you to bring that 4K in. And that's going to be an uncompressed signal on a powerful Mac. I, I believe that Memo just really sits on the Mac platform, you know, the Mac uh, capabilities. So you should be able to make that happen relatively in a relatively straightforward way. Great. Let's uh, go to our next question. Craig McFarlane writes in from Boston, Massachusetts. What Mac clipboard enhancement apps are you happy with? Uh, John Pewitt. So I've been using Pastebot. Uh, it's uh, basically compiles a list of your uh, clipboard, and I find it very useful and very stable. Uh, do add your password managers to the blacklist on it so that it doesn't remember your passwords. Otherwise, you'll have everything there. Ah, Jason Bache. A good save, John. I am I gave up on anything clipboard-related when I started looking into and discovering all the nasty things that can be done when you give an application that you didn't compile access to your clipboard. It, it, it is one of the easiest ways to get into a Mac and really mess with people. So yeah, if you're going to add it to a blacklist, good. Uh, I'll point you in the right direction. The Stream Deck has a pasteboard management that will actually take the clipbook and put it onto a button. So if that's handy to you, give it a shot. I don't use it, but yeah, pretty neat. Alex? Yeah, I've, I've really moved away from doing any of those things because I move between so many computers. If I build something, if you have only one computer, I think it might be fine and you can burrow in and do all kinds of things. I don't like a lot of the OS-based uh, solutions because I'm jumping from computer to computer to computer and I want to keep my, my pipeline the same. So my, I would say that my clipboard enhancement is really just Apple Notes. Nice. Uh, we've been cutting through questions at a nice clip. We're only about 10 minutes ahead of the top of the hour in the second hour show, so we'll move over a little early. If you have other questions that you'd like us to deal with, that's entirely up to you. Either way, uh, let's move on to the next question. 
Douglas Carmichael writes in Reuters exposed that Tesla employees were sharing images from customer cars for non-work related reasons. How do you feel about the privacy issues of the connected car? I never thought of car as camera. Alex, your thoughts? And that is why people want their Apple CarPlay. <laughs> so we, we had a discussion about this in in uh, in in on MacBreak, and I think that uh, that the, you know I think that you have to decide w- whether you want the car companies to have control of that or whether that Apple should have control of that. I mean, I think that this is anytime there's this camera and it's connected, you're going to have the danger of having this happen. I don't know how serious it actually was, uh, but uh, but that is why that. And you'll find that a lot of folks. Uh, a lot of, if you look at tech leaders, you'll notice how often uh, their cameras are taped. Uh, and oftentimes even the headphone jack is is plugged in with something. Um, you, you, it's interesting you, that, that they would be, especially ones in big social companies, you'll notice that there's like a little tape over there. Uh, and a lot of us keep our, our um, cameras, any laptop camera, any camera that's connected, a lot of us tend to put tape tape over it <laughs> for, you know, just to make sure that, that that it only opens when we want, when we want it to, which is almost never. Some people make those little tiny sliding windows you can stick on there. That's You can't. Yeah, exactly. There, there is like a little one that just snaps on. I just, I find that gaff tape is very effective and I just put it over top of my, at least my laptops. I don't know if I'd put it over my Tesla window, uh, but, but the best way to protect yourself from camera stuff being shared is to any kind of connected camera to have it um, cut up. When I'm, when I'm in, uh, at home, you know, one of the things I have is I have, a, I have my switcher and I, I almost always will just switch away to that blank slate um, anytime I'm not using it, just to make sure. Chasing the base. Yeah, same for me on the studio at home. For me, it's it's just straight FTB and then the clean feeds. This is one of the few things that I use the ATEM macro to do. And it simply blacks and mutes everything, and then you know returning it to a to another state is really easy in the morning. Um, I mean, how how would I feel about this? Let me put it this way: I have great CarPlay integration, and my car is not allowed to touch the inter- internet at all ever. I don't use it at all. Yeah, as long as the AI in your car doesn't start pushing back at that thought, it's great, John Pewitt. So I remember many years ago when I used to work in retail that one of our favorite pastimes was to look up famous people in our shopping uh, receipts and to see what they returned, what they bought, that kind of stuff. This is not new to Tesla. What requires, and this is this happens with police departments all the time and with, with other uh, places that have this kind of data. You need to have controls in place to make sure your employees don't do that. And you need to have, uh, I hate to say, employee surveillance to make sure that these rules are followed. Um, But Tesla doesn't seem the sort of company that considers these, we'll call them edge cases. And that is very concerning to me. Nigel. Uh well, a few thoughts, really. First of all, I used to have a boss who would say, you have no privacy, get over it. So if you're, you know, you, to some extent, you have to come to terms with the fact that you don't know all the things you're being marked. I think the Tesla one is a complicated one because so much of the data they're capturing, they do use for adding uh, intelligence to their AI. And I love our Tesla with one exception. You can't use CarPlay. So, you know, because if you use the mapping, you have to use the Tesla system. Uh, uh, to to drive that. I am concerned additionally, I think that 
GM recently said it was going to stop using CarPlay and go to all Google. And, and, and it seems to me that we're in the middle of a battle. And I thought the battle had sort of been won, but the uh, manufacturers are fighting back because they've probably lost access to all sorts of data and information they had before. And they uh, love to monetize that. I don't think Tesla is monetizing it. My guess is this is a, you know, a, a side case or a corner case and they will slap down on it. But, but increasingly, I think we all have to accept that everything we do and everywhere we go is known by somebody. Alex, you want to return? I do say, I have to say that especially I'm, I'm somewhere in the future, I'll need to get a new car. And I've already considered Apple, Air, I mean, CarPlay based on my, the experience that I've had with uh, one of our cars that well, one car doesn't have CarPlay and the other one does. And I will say that it's table stakes. <laughs> like, like if I, there's no car that I will buy that doesn't have uh, CarPlay in it because it's just too tightly wound. I'm um, just not, I'm just not interested. Jason Bache. Alex's response on Mac break was one of the few things that got me to stand up and go, yes, get out of my head, which was, oh, like I didn't need another reason to buy a GM. Ah, John Pewitt. Just to, to clarify something that Nigel said, when he said Google, he actually meant a Google Auto thing, not Android Auto. Uh, they're, they're, ki they're kicking out both uh, Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, which means you won't be able to stream your phone screen to your dashboard, which is what those applications do. They don't rely on the car for anything other than a screen. Interesting. Nigel, you had a thought? Uh, yes, that's a good clarification, except the only thing I was implying was less Google Android and more Google, which uh, I don't necessarily trust not to monetize everything it can about me, regardless of what they do. Interesting. Jeff Francis. Oh, I'm sorry. Next question. Jeff Francis writes in, has anyone used Pelican cases as regular luggage for clothing, etc.? Thoughts? Alex? I have, and I don't recommend it. Um, so I've used both the 1510 as well as the Air, um, the Air series, um, which the Air series feels a little bit more like luggage and a little less like a Pelican case. And um, the problem really is, is that it, it kind of advertises that it's it might be heavy, it might be uh, might have gear in it, it might have other things like that. And so I, you know, I, I've had things weighed that didn't need to be weighed uh, in other countries like Germany and Frankfurt and Lufthansa, not that I'm bitter. Um, anyway, so um, so I, I think that I, I've learned to try to avoid anything with carry-ons. If I need a, a Pelican case, I'll use it. But a lot of times I try to avoid using it at all because it just kind of makes me a mark you know, for those things. And so uh, so I've, I've kind of moved away from those. I'm, I'm using the away bags. Uh, which I, are very, very light. So they're also a couple, like, solid five pounds lighter than the Pelican case. So if you're trying to put stuff into it and you're, you're concerned about weight, the away bags work really well. Jason? I've absolutely used them largely because I don't really care how they look. The real issue is their weight. Um, if you are credentialed media, yes, there are workarounds and you can get away with a, a, a little bit more weight, sometimes a lot more weight, depending upon the airline and whether or not you bring chocolate. But um, at the end of the day, this is purely a utilitarian choice. Uh, I don't, yeah, I'm with Alex. I don't recommend it, but I still do it every now and again. Yeah, you've heard the word weight three times, and I'm going to plus one on that. Uh, I've had Pelican cases, the bigger ones, that you put them on a scale and you're at 30 pounds before you put anything in them. And these days when airline rates can change at 50, that's not a lot of stuff versus the case itself. Let's go on to the next question. 
James Babbitt writes in from San Diego, great presentation on HDR with the multiple color Telestrator. Please explain how you got your multiple colors with a Telestrator. People are noticing your Telestrator evolution, Alex. So, yeah. so for five years or more, I mean, like eight years now, I've had a Telestrator that you guys saw that had kind of rough lines and it was one color and I could only do a, a color. And I've been working with Ron C. Robles to, to, build, to build a new one. <laughs> so it was like, anytime someone talked about programming, I'd be like, hey, would you like to work on a Telestrator program? With, with with me and 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 uh, so finally uh, Juan has uh, you know volunteered to to work on it with me and so uh, the two of us are putting it together um, it's getting pretty close it has a bunch of colors um, Mac version so one install will theoretically work on both of them uh, working on some of the Id idiosyncrasies of making that happen <laughs> and so uh, so anyway so we're working on that a lot of little fine tuning of you know of the of the edges and stale but what that's actually doing is all the Everything is all set to keystrokes, which means I can set it all to my stream deck, which means I can just sit. So what I'm, when you see me changing the colors, I'm, I have a stream deck open and then I'm just hitting buttons as I, as I talk. Um, I'm a big, one of the big requirements for me from, for the, for the app, which has been really hard has been uh, no interface. So when it opens up, it's, it's good to go. Like it's ready to, you know, and you have to, um, and so, um, so I, I like to do it that way because as a presenter, I've been doing this for a long time and I just don't want to ever have something pop up. So I'm always just trying to make sure that it all just does what it needs to do. Um, the one that you're seeing is still the Wacom tablet with a Mac mini. Um, but again, there'll be a, the same build will be iPad as well. And we expect to release it in May. It's, it's pretty close now. Um, so stay tuned for that and we'll let you all know when it's uh, ready to be purchased. Exciting. It Top of the hour, but we've got one more question we can handle before we switch over. Sure. Josh, Josh Kaufman from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania writes in, panelists, thoughts about tail scale or splash top for remote production? Do you prefer alternatives? John Pewitt is going to help us. Yeah, um, I've heard a lot about tail scale from Steve Gibson, and so I've been looking into using it, but I haven't had a chance to use it yet. I haven't heard of splash top, so I'll reserve my comments on that. But tail scale... Uh, from a security point of view, looks to be very good uh, from that aspect. All righty. We have hit the top of the hour. Thank you all for your first hour questions. We really appreciate it every day. And this is time for me to toss things, I believe, over to Alex. And we're going to be talking about Office Hours 2.5 here. Yeah, we're really excited about it. I mean, so there's been a lot of work. I mean, the development team has done an amazing amount of work. And one of the things that's really interesting is that we're, it's not just our, our team. We've got a great team that has been putting in a, a huge amount of work, but we're also working with uh, all of our partners. So whether it's uh, Zoom, uh, 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 Troikotronics, uh, Universe, all of these companies are working with us to figure out, okay, well, how do we have, how do we make things work? And we're pushing the outer edges of the stability of everything um, to make all of these things work. So it's just been um, a, a giant uh, group effort um, make the, make all of this work. And we're really excited about how far we've come, you know, since the last big update. And we wanted to make sure that people really understand where we're at and answer your questions. We get a lot of questions about how does this actually work. So in addition to the progress that we've made, which I'm going to hand off to Tlaloc in a second, we uh, we also you know want to answer your questions just about how it works. Uh, we do think that this may not be the future, but it's definitely pointing towards a, a new kind of future where uh, a lot of people all over the world can produce a relatively high quality um, uh, show every single day. And, and I think that that opens up to a lot of other potential markets and a lot of other potential um, uses. And so we're really excited about that. And, you know, we're 
still figuring it out, <laughs> still working on it. Um, but but I think that uh, the what it kind of points to is something pretty exciting. Uh, Salak, I'm going to go ahead and throw it to you to kind of start start off the the, the true conversation there. Hi. So yeah, um, <clears throat> apologize if you hear anything in the background. I'm uh, in not in my in a normal situation here, but I just uh, I just wanted to start by thanking everybody that's been working on this project for for so long now, um, and we we have kind of a three three points that we that we try to work on <clears throat> stability <laughs> stability and stability <laughs> and um and so you know there are there are a lot of moving parts that work on the, in this process and so uh, we made some changes in uh maybe a couple three months ago where juan built a whole new way that the isadora patch works to think about who's in and where they're in and Pinning them to the appropriate place and getting getting the outputs going to the to uh, through Zoom ISO to to the the switcher <clears throat> and um, and so we we needed to take uh, some time to sort of make that work in a in a, in a very robust way and then um, <clears throat> the other thing that we've been doing is starting to implement the idea of color correction through the FSHDRs. Which you know, Alex will talk a little bit more about, but he hasn't been able to to do much of that because there's only about ten minutes in the world in the world of the show where he gets to to actually adjust those, and so we're we're making some more changes so that he can try to work on that throughout the, the process, and um, and then uh, uh, we are so there's you know how do we control those? How do we keep those? Uh, adjusted to the appropriate person um, and uh, and then also all while still giving the TDs around the world the ability to control and switch the show and keeping things a little elevate, more automated as we have an ebb and flow in crew members um, and then there's a huge huge push by the um, by the teams that train like led primarily by Richard Lavery to build a good flow of of new people coming in to cut the show, to deal deal with graphics, to do all of that, and I hope to talk a little bit more about some of that uh, on this on this show. The other thing I wanted to point out is we sometimes get the wrong flag <laughs> on the lower thirds, so I'm going to um, implore all of you producers to. Put not only your state state in your in Mukana, but also the country. So, like if you're from California, uh, you should be saying CA space US because the problem is 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 we're making it look like you're coming from Canada because CA is the two two code um, uh, note for Canada. So things like that would really really help us. We try to to fix those issues in programming, but there's a lot to do. And so if, if you help us with that, we, it'll, it'll relieve the pressure a little bit. And do you want to talk about any of the other updates that, that we've made? I mean, I think this is the, this, we haven't talked for months now. For months. So yeah. So one of the big things we did is we started to utilize isolated audio uh, at times more and more, um, which allows us to pull people down, adjust different sync levels. Um, we have updated to current Zoom ISO. Um, uh, 
And, and, and the thing that's interesting about the, the, the audio, you know, eventually it'll all be, the, and we found like little things that weren't working perfectly for us. And so we've been working on getting those, those things adjusted. Um, but the, the main thing is, is that by having isolated audio, it does mean that, and we, again, we don't have it all working right now, but we were slowly getting closer to it, is that we will be able to, as we move forward, um, it's going to get to a point where the volume for every person is managed individually, the uh, the sync for every person. And what's coming next is really being able to have an interface for that. So you'll have somebody be able to open up a, a thing and just move each person's sync and each person's audio levels um, individually. And eventually we could even add EQ to them and so on and so forth. So, so all of those things and pan them and a lot of other things that are all there. So getting those ISO audio out has been a key piece of it. And we're just kind of working through that very slowly, getting all those bits and pieces working. But it really is going to set up for a different, you know, just as we get that fully in and have it be there uh, full time, uh, I think you're going to see yet another jump in the quality of, of the of the show, um, that especially related to audio. Yeah, and and the, um, you know, there's a there's there's a lot of moving parts in terms of the fact that, you know, I'll reiterate, we talked about this in, in, in past updates, but the way this works is we're outputting uh, the panelists from Zoom ISO into the Constellation. Um, Zoom ISO sends information about what's happening in the meeting to Isadora. And um, Isadora listens for uh, controls from Universe, who... Who, which is it's just how the TDs around the world are controlling the show, and and then Isadora, once it hears a request from one of the TDs, sends a request to Mix Effect, and Mix Effect then switches, you know, cuts or or um, um, uh, transitions or uh, previews, whatever the TD needs um, in in the constellation. The Active speaker is being switched on ME2, um, and so whenever we go to active speaker, we switch. You know, we switch to ME2. There's a graphics ME on ME on ME4, and um, ME3. Something we do on ME3, and all of a sudden it's 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 left my brain. Um, but but the but the thing the thing to note is that we're really utilizing this equipment kind of right to the edge of what it can do. Um, and, um, and we're trying, trying every day to make that more efficient and make that be something that can, uh, can work for the system at, at hand. Yeah. And I think that, that, you know, again, these are, um, you know, a lot of bits and pieces, um, that, that are getting put together. And the main thing is, is getting them all to work together. And people always ask, well, can you get rid of some of these applications and make it simpler? Can one application do all of these? And we found so far, no. We need we we're you know we're not adding things just because someone sent them to us. Uh, each piece of hardware, each piece of software, I think for what we're doing um, is uh, has been has been pretty important. Um, let's go ahead and uh, talk. Do you have more? Do you want to cover before we jump into questions? Let's jump into questions. I might jump in with some other thoughts as I see questions. But okay, great. Okay, perfect. First one's here from Brian Chand in Sydney, Australia, and he says, how does the FS HDR fit into the Office Hours 2.5 world, and is there a cheaper alternative? So, yeah, so we have, uh, there are six FS HDRs that are um, stacked, and those are managing color for, they, they could theoretically manage color for the whole show. Right now, they're really designed to manage color for HDR. So here's the problem that we have, is that we need to figure out how, uh, it, it, 
moving us from Zoom to HDR may not make as much sense. But when we have live inputs coming in, um, whether those are playback, whether those are live from a live view, uh, another connection, we want to be able to take those and move them to an HDR um, space. And so, uh, and we want that to be nice and clean. Uh, so theoretically, we could be, for instance, having an output of Resolve, and we're talking about Resolve, and it's got an HDR output. And you could, if you were watching on YouTube with an HDR screen, you could actually see that output um, in HDR, which no one's, to my knowledge, has that been doing online training with surround and HDR actually in the online training. And so that's the thing that I, we're hoping to get to at some point. And as well as just being able to kind of push that, the idea is to be able to do it every day, but that has turned out to be pretty complicated. So what we're using the FSHDRs for is that all the outputs from Isadora, and what, or not Isadora, but all the outputs from ISO are being routed and they go into the router, they go out and they're not being changed at all to go into the uh, standard, standard dynamic range, the one that you're watching right now. But what we and what we had was we were going through those and then out to SD, SDR and then we could look at them in HDR. We would just convert the output. The problem with that was that I only had ten minutes, <laughs> so I had I had the time. I would get a list of who was who was in what outputs or who who's in what inputs in the FS HDR, and then I had um, a couple minutes before we went live to play with it and see how it's working and see what's working here and here and here and here. What we're doing now is we're basically going we're routing the ISOs into the FSHDR, um, into the FSHDRs as well as into the SDR show. And what that allows us to do, and then the FSHDRs are going into their own constellation at the moment, and that constellation is going out to, the, to a stream test. And so the advantage of that is that now I've got an HDR world, so we can use those FSHDRs to convert each channel to HDR so that the only thing going into the second uh, constellation is HDR content. So we're making that, con you know, making that there so that there's nothing else there. We're not trying to figure out how do we do it. The one thing that we haven't been super successful at is mixing and matching HDR content with the constellation. It wants to have everything be one way or the other. And when in doubt, it goes back to 709. <laughs> so, so we, and there's not really a, a, a manual way to make that, make that adjustment. So what we're doing is routing everything into the FSHDRs. Then we're routing out of those into that constellation. And and then we're you know can we, we convert them in the FSHDRs to to HDR. We are, can tweak the colors so that we can get the most out of that, and then we run them in there. Now that also means that we can have other outputs like playback and other things going into it, and then being prepped to go out go out to the world that way. Um, and then we can also use that last FSHDR as a way to embed. So the FSHDRs take Matty, but we have a Dante to Matty box um, that we can use that we can take our Dante, patch it in and embed it there to send it out is 5.1. So we're doing 5.1 to, um, we're one of the kind of the few channels right now that are rolling out with 5.1 to the to YouTube. So we're gonna be experimenting more and more. You'll see with that as well. Um, now we're not gonna be doing a lot of that during NAB, uh, you, not during the, the mixed show. When we do it at NAB, we're really just pushing it straight from a live view straight out. That um, we may go through some audio stuff to to work with that, but outside of that, it's a pretty it's it's bypassing that system because we're just not quite ready yet for that. But we will be. You'll see us experimenting over even next week of us kind of figuring out some of those pipelines. But now that we've separated those two things out, I can spend the whole show, you know, on the shows that I'm not on or the shows that I'm not hosting, I can spend the whole show tweaking it. Now, what's also happening as I tweak it is Chad is watching in the background. What am I moving <laughs> and what does it do and how does it work? 
And because all of the FSHDRs are, are all the controls in the FSHDR are available via REST. And so what that means is that as I figure out what we need to be able to change and how we need to be able to change it, what I'm gonna be able to do is, um, uh, Chad's gonna be able to work on, these are the app, these are what we need to be able to control. Then we can build that into Isadora and into Universe so that instead of having to go into the, I'm going directly into the FSHDR interface, the web interface to make it work. But in the future, we're gonna be able to have a, you know, someone somewhere in the world have a web interface, the same that we have for cutting the show and being able to color every, every you know, just work on the color for every person. So imagine these new things that are coming out as we move even to the next, the next iteration where someone can tweak the sync for somebody, someone can tweak the, the levels, the, even the EQ for, for a variety of different people coming in from audio. And on the video side, they can sit and tweak the color they can, you know, play with exposure, those types of things. And so we're looking at what those requirements are so that we can really fine tune all of those things. And so your second part of your question, is there a cheaper alternative? No, there's not. There's not a cheaper alternative. If, if there was, we'd really think about it. Uh, it. You know, when you're thinking about four channel, when you take the total cost, the total cost of these is about $4,000 or $8,000 each. Um, the total cost is you multiply it, you divide it by four because there's four channels. So now you're getting 2,000 each. And then you look at all the controls that we have there, and we don't know of another piece of another piece of hardware that we could do, and even software uh, would add latency and a lot of other things that we wouldn't want. So, so right now we think that that is the most efficient way to actually make make that work. Uh, let's go back to the next question. Next question is coming to us from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado, and Jack says, "What direction will 2.5 take for streaming versus video on demand? Panel answer, labs, after hours." Yeah, so I think that um, we'd like to use it in more places, and so the, the first step is—I mean, we're still—it's still very much a streaming platform. Uh, we can, you know, and it generate we generate v, VOD as we go through it. I, I do think that eventually we could be using it for labs, um, you know, in the future. We right now we have to make it make sure that it's simple to run and simple, you know. And this gets in, into the scalability. Right now we still light up a small village to turn it on, and so as we make it more efficient um, to be able to do. The goal really here is down the road is to get to a point where it is, it may not be as good as office hours with all the people that we have there, but can we have like a version that kind of runs on its own and does a good enough version for us to execute smaller events inside of? And so those, those are one of the things we're going to be looking at in the future. Tlaloc? Yeah, I mean, I think what might be interesting, and I don't know how you feel about this, Alex, but um, would be for us to actually do a lab with the system. Um, for folks to see how it sort of yeah. works uh, outside of the pressure of a show, <clears throat> and then those then those people who are in that lab, uh, we would request to then turn their cameras on, and then they would be sort of the panelists, quote unquote, inside of that show, and they would see how that all routes and moves around. It's a, it's an idea that just propped in my head because of this question, but um, thought we might might yeah, might we're happy to do that. Yeah, we'd love to love to do a lab. So maybe we'll. Right now we'll get through NEB, <laughs> but but let's look at some labs in May. It'd be great to open it up and really talk about what we're doing and how we're how how all of the stuff actually works. Hundred uh, percent. Next question. Jonas Donald, Stuttgart, Germany. What is the current progress on sharing or opening the tech to the community? Yeah. So the the main thing that we're trying to figure out right now is is making it number one is getting it to be stable. We had a big stability issue, so there were times when it was crashing. It turned out to be an NVIDIA driver, um, and so when we took a couple things out of what we were doing, it stabilized. And so we've had less a lot 
not no crashes, but a lot less. What's great is that the system has been built with enough resiliency that generally in the show, if we know what we're looking at, we know that we might have crashed or there's an edit that feels really long, but it's not like it goes to nothing. And so, so a lot, you know, we've had some stuff that we've been challenged with, but rarely do you actually see that in the output of the show. So, so that's been really, really good, but we have to get that kind of, that stabilized a little bit more. And we're very close to that, getting some of the, the ISO audio stuff fi finished and those kinds of pieces fin finished is important. And then getting some of the kind of auto controls, you know, need to be kind of set up because it's going to be very hard for someone else to take on quite the level that we do at office hours every day. And so figuring out how to make that actually work. And then finally, being able to change states so that we can be in office hours and have a certain look and be able to have just something that you load in and the next hour it looks, you know, it can it might do all the same things, but have a different color and different background and those types of things. And so those are the things that we need to get done before we can probably change its state, you know, but our goal is to get to a point where we could finish office hours at nine and at 9.01 be doing a different show. And it would be, you know, and, and we could, it's already very virtual, so it could be handed off relatively fast. And we just need to, you know, we're, we're still working on on what that would actually look like. Go ahead, Tlaloc. And I think also what Jonas might be asking about is how to share the actual um, development that has been that has been done. And because we work in uh, a big part of the the back end is Isadora and Isadora is not code based. Well, I mean, it is code based at the end of the day, but it, it the forward facing thing is node based. <clears throat> and, um, and so it's like you open a proprietary, uh, uh, not a proprietary, that's the wrong word. You open a file that is an Isadora file, right? And <clears throat> when you, when you're developing with, with a larger community in code, the thing that, the reason that many of our coders really wish that this was more in that style is that you can you can post that to a thing like GitHub and see the change log and see how things are moving and changing and 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 then other developers can can contribute to that. Um, there are a lot of people that are working on this project that are not originally code minds like myself <laughs> you know i've for a long time i've worked in isadora and worked in those node-based methodology and learned more about how a program could go together but I, I didn't i'm not a um you know incredibly trained and very very smart um programmer like like jonas and so there's a little bit of tension there in in the way in which we work and so as we've gone through inside of isadora there's been a lot of javascript uh, uh, write um, coding and and so some of that has turned into being able to to look at those files and and adjust them that way and so as we as we move forward we're we're trying to think about that and trying to to um, keep in mind the different methodologies of work that people like to use and trying to make that usable for everybody. Yeah, and while we've made it, while well, Arc, even the node based is really heavy, uh, I'm, I, I will admit that I'm a big proponent of node, of low code uh, basis. I think that there's a big future in that area. And I think it's probably, you know, the, the, I think that you're going to, I believe, and this is just my belief, is that a very large percentage of apps in the next 10 years will be 
built with low-code solutions. Um, and this has to do with the interaction of AI and a lot of other things there and, and being able to uh, build flowcharts to, to make a lot of this work. And so I think that, um, I don't think that there, I think there'll always be a place for good coders, but I think that there's an awful lot of people who want to produce something and don't necessarily know all the code structure. So um, it probably is quite some time before we would try to convert to some kind of uh, more uh, strict coding. As far as people taking the methodologies of what we're doing and making their own code out of it, I'm fine with that. <laughs> like we, we're, we're trying to uh, be the, you know, an example of what it can look like, um, you know, in that process. Uh, I want to make sure that it's still something that um, someone could theoretically get into Isadora and, you know, start learning and then be able to join and contribute to parts of what we're doing and not have to learn formal coding. So, so I think that, and again, I think that that's going to be that there's a lot of people working on that, you know, so, so uh, as, as far as low code solutions. And so I think that, uh, I think that that's the, I think we're going to, I'm more. I'm not that interested in moving that over right now, just because we're we're trying to just solve the things that we have to solve. <laughs> so, so I think that we're not gonna. We're happy for people to take, like, especially people on our team to take stuff and do whatever they want with it, and figure that stuff out. Um, I think that we're not that interested in trying to add another layer of of complexity to something while we're still working on building it out. You know, in the in the again out of the commitment of just trying to make it more available to the community. If someone wants to take what the ideas that we're doing and turn it into real code and and do what they want to do with it, I'm 100% behind that. I just want to make sure we're clear. I'm just not interested in putting effort into it right now, uh, mostly because I, I think it'll actually, it would actually, my experience is, is that it would actually end up slowing down the overall progress you know, on, on, the, on, the, uh, on the development. So I probably wouldn't, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in having be open development. I'm not interested in slowing down in, in for the, uh, in the, with the commitment to open development. Like I'm not interested in adding any extra work <laughs> to do that. So, so that, I think that would be the, that's kind of my, uh, my two cents on that right now. Eventually we know that it's going to end up as code. Like we know that someone's going to, we're going to take all the things that we figured out and we're going to do all the things that we're doing here a year from now, uh, or two years from now, and it's all going to get written into code and it's going to become something that's much more. But once we, my experience has been so far is that it becomes, uh, much harder to make changes once it starts to be written, you know, and the, and I've worked on a lot of development teams. I'm developing some stuff now and I've, you know, like, well, I'm on like three or four different development teams for different pieces of applications. And I just know that once we start writing code, it's one thing when we're starting to throw things together. Once we start writing code, there's just a lot more meetings and <laughs> a lot more to do. So anyway, that's, that's, that's the, that's, that's my two cents on it. And I'm open to having those continuing to have those conversations in our dev teams and so on and so forth. I don't have a, I don't have a super strong opinion about it. it's just, that's where I'm standing right now. Um, next question. Tommy Shanson, St. Paul, Minnesota. As long as this is a global project, could we lose the imperial measurement system and go with a 20 centimeter banana and kilometers for scale? Uh, Jason. Tommy, you got this wrong. See, the miles are for us and banana is its own scale. Okay. Like it's already been solved. You're welcome. <laughs> It's, it's yeah the, the banana the banana is I, I think whatever we can decide what it is but the banana is a banana it happens to be eight inches long uh, but or twenty centimeters but but the and we do we do talk about kilometers I think every every single time so I think that uh, we, we are trying to include that but the idea is to move the banana to bananas as our own imperial scale 
<laughs> so, so anyway, so just, just, just in reference to just bananas. So, but I do believe we talk about miles and kilometers on, on both of those, uh, each, each morning. Uh, next question. Oh, darn. I have to take my driver's license stats yeah, exactly. and convert them to bananas. Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts is coming up next. What part of the office hours pipeline approach and architecture are shareable for learning versus proprietary? Nothing's proprietary. Like you can, you can definitely ask us questions about it. We'll do some labs. We'll show you where, you know, we're happy to share what we're working on. There's nothing there that we're trying to protect. So, uh, you know, we're much more interested in, uh, unless Tlaloc tells me that I'm, I'm wrong, <laughs> but, but we're not trying to protect anything there. Go ahead, Tlaloc. No, I don't, I don't think you're wrong at all. I, you know, there yeah. may be some things on the, on the Mukana side that are a little bit, le you know, more carefully, carefully guarded. But uh, that's it, you know. When it comes to all of the rest of it, is it's very, very open. We have um, uh, folks working on some documentation and some some diagrams of the of the line, you know, of how of the routes of how everything moves. And um, um, I think we can we can begin soon to share that out to the world yeah. and uh, show. And I think I think you I think that'll be I think that'll be a really good way for people to sort of understand how that is supposed to work. Yeah, and and we are uh, we are hoping that people will take what we're figuring out, and whether it's Jonas deciding to write it all in code, or somebody else deciding to build a new Isadora patch, or something that is completely different. You know, we're not. We definitely know that this isn't the perfect solution for what we're doing. We it's just the first one. <laughs> you know, like it's you know that does all these things that 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 put it together. I, we haven't seen somebody else do something exactly what we're doing here, and and I will say that I have an opinion that. Uh, we see a lot of event software that is got all this crazy, these crazy features that are really about building a, the problem with almost all the event software, and that comes from Zoom events to, to hop in to all the other platforms that we've seen so far, is that they're really trying to have the, they're trying to reproduce the physical experience, you know, in the virtual world. And they've got all this, what I would call the technical term for this is, Garbaligook <laughs> that is all trying to figure this all out and and trying to recreate that experience. And I get I get where they're coming from. What we're really going towards is how do we make the conversation really work? And how do we make it something that looks reasonably good, that has a pattern to it, that has a that has a work process to it, and that is and gets really to the the the, the basics of we're gonna have a bunch of people talk and we're gonna have a bunch of people ask questions. And I feel like that is one of the most important things to work on. And I feel like we're some of the only people really working on it at that level that, that you know, while it may seem very complex and we're using some complex hardware, it's nothing compared to what other people are doing. And we're doing things that, I, again, I don't see in a lot of other places using. Um, and I think that, so I think that we're, um, you know, we're, we're kind of moving down that path. But I would say that we're, uh, we, we're hoping that people will take this and go, well, I can do this with it and I can do something else and I can, you know, make it, make it better um, and on their own. And we're, we're happy for people to do that. Our next question. Jonas from Stuttgart is back with what are the biggest challenges with Office Hours 2.5 right now? Go ahead, Tlaloc. One of the things that is, is kind of difficult is the way in which <clears throat> development happens, right? If, if, we, if we need something to change in, in any of the patches, <clears throat> We have to make sure that like six different branches aren't created right away, right? And so one of one of the challenges is is making sure that everybody and you know being somebody who is trying to help the the process along, uh, I don't I don't I don't get it right 
you know, two thirds of the time. <laughs> and so I'm trying, I've, I've been trying to help facilitate everybody who's working on it and get them to have the right information at the right time. But I do, I do it's, so one of the challenges is that it's just project management, <laughs> you know, and uh, everybody, everybody in the team would probably agree with, with me on that. Um, and, uh, but, but what we try to do is make sure that every, everybody kind of who is actively working on, on, on something can, um, work on it and then send it in and have a testing process. And then, um, um, and then if there's another, like sometimes there's parallel projects that are being worked on and those will not be implemented into production until we know the handles that are needed and we can kind of see where that goes. And then that goes drop, gets dropped in. And then we test those on a weekend and make sure that we don't have any external guests coming in for that particular test process. Um, because there's a lot of, of work that cannot really be tested until we're on the show. And that's a big challenge. Um, and, and so what we're balancing, and I apologize for the light here, but the, what, what we're balancing is making a show that seems really seamless and beautiful with advancing the, the product and, and, the, and the project. And, you know, one of the things that, that uh, Chad pointed out in our panel view is that it's, it, we have to remember that it's also not, we're just not, it's not just that we're getting better. Um, Zoom ISO, Zoom OSC, Mix Effect Pro, Isadora, uh, even, you know, all of those things are getting, uh, they're all improving their products because of what we're pushing. And so, so it is something that we are, uh, we're taking, you know, <laughs> we're taking a lot of hits at times and the team is taking a lot of hits, but we're really plowing into areas that have never been uh, you know, just really haven't been done before. We're, you know, th this is um, really generally very, very new uh, to, to build this and to be able to have an interface that someone without, you know, years and years and years of technical experience can get in there and start to edit. And that's the thing, as you volunteer for these kinds of things, you're you're really in part of this process that, you know, we have people that haven't been TDs for the last 10 years cutting shows. We have people who are um, managing graphics and managing other bits and pieces of this without all of that traditional background there. And there's a real opportunity right now um, to be part of that if, if people are interested in that. So make sure to look at the volunteer things if you're interested in it. But um, but we're always looking for new people to look at that and looking at how we're going to train it because we think that some version of this, maybe not this version, but some version of this could end up being something that we, that we use a lot, that other people use a lot for actual products. And they're going to be looking for people to run it. And while it doesn't require the same uh, technical background as the past, it will require people who have already used the system. And so part of our having people working on this is to find all those people, train all those people, build all the demand. The hardest thing to do is that once you get something really working and it's all like, okay, we're ready to go, then you have to find people <laughs> to get them up to speed and make sure that they fit into the community and they, they know how to do it and they, they understand the flow. And so, uh, you know, the teams are really built around trying to, to you know, be ready, you know, throw the ball to where the receiver is going to be um, rather than where they are right now. And so, so I think that, you know, another challenge is just making sure that, you know, we, we have enough people that are learning how to do it and uh, being ready for the next step when, when we're ready, when the, when the hardware and the software are ready to, to do that as well. Uh, yeah. Next question. Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area is up next. Is there a block diagram available for the current office hours, hardware and software schema? I think we have a graphic for that. Is there a graphic? Yeah, I think there is a graphic, and um, uh, I don't. Yeah, there it is. And so we can kind of take a look there. And um, this is the basic graphic of the hardware, right? 
yeah, the hardware of, of, of what's coming in from Zoom, the Zoom ISO machines and then going out to um, the various video hubs and the Constellation. Uh, and then, and then you know, there's also a bunch of graphics machines. And uh, JJ, if you're willing to speak to this at all, I would be grateful. Uh, yeah, so actually it's, it's been mutating a little bit and we, we love... We love to document, uh, hopefully, when things are stable. And currently, there's a little bit of mutations because we've been trying to make sure that the FSHDR tests uh, work well with what's coming up with NAB, the live view. So this is mostly true. Uh, regarding the graphics, I think the graphics are here. I can't, I, I, I haven't perused this uh, very closely uh, right now because I can't see it very well. Um, but the graphics machines are 16 and 15 and 16 of those two computers, PC computers running SPX, getting fed with the information from Bukana, which goes into Isadora, which goes into SPX. And, and, and part of the issue we occasionally face is uh, diacritic marks. Um, this morning, for instance, we had a small meltdown uh, at the top of the show because Tlaloc has a marvelously, marvelously colorful name, just like his lighting. Uh, and so, so running the issues that the dedication will will take things apart, as mentioned earlier, making everything stable. Uh, this diagram is current as of Monday, but not current immediately now. That's not <laughs> constantly, <laughs> constantly changing there. Yeah, it's, it's good. It lasted three days. Yeah. yeah exactly. Well, no, it lasted a little while. <laughs> yeah. So, so that gives you a sense of what the wiring diagram looks like. And again, I think that. There is a point where we think that a lot of this will end up in the, you know, in the cloud. You know, the, this is not something that we think will be in hardware forever. But again, when we look at trying to get and 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 it, I know that HDR and five point one and potentially Atmos and Vision seem like a really big stretch for a little show where we all sit around and talk. But the opportunity um, to have a lot of people working on something like that and having it run every day means that we get really really good at. Um, doing something like something that was hard and has taken us a lot of time to kind of figure out exactly how to get it all working and we're, is going to continue to take time um, is that, you know, we're going to be the, the big advantage of that is, is that once we get to a point where we're producing HDR, we're producing 5.1, eventually Vision and Atmos, and we're doing it every day. <laughs> There's not a lot of places that do that every single day. and ha And then we're making it available for folks that don't have a ton of training to have the controls that they need to be able to do that. So we're, we're democratizing the access to really high-end solutions and making that easier and more scalable. That's pretty interesting to me. Um, and, and being able to build something that, you know, is really going to continue. When you see the HDR test, they look pretty fantastic. You know, like when, it, when it's working, you're like, wow, that's amazing. Even coming out of Zoom, it actually looks pretty good. And so so we're going to keep on pushing that envelope and and moving forward because it's a great opportunity for us to learn and get, you know, the knowledge out of our head and in, all the way down to our fingers by doing it all the time and having just, you know, average folks that haven't necessarily, again, had 10 years or 20 years of broadcast experience being doing color correction and doing sync and audio and all those other bits and pieces. So we're pretty excited about it. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael up next with, would you ever think of sharing the multi-view display with comms in an after-hours breakout room? It could be a useful tool for recruiting new crew along with enabling off-duty crew to develop their skills. Go ahead, JJ. So I think uh, what, we've, what we've actually offered... Uh, hopefully, as people coming on the crew, um, off-duty, a lot of us never have off-duty. That doesn't <laughs> exist. Uh, uh, and so bringing on more people to come on, we've tried 
um, with other types of shows, having a a backroom type of show, and that actually ended up breaking some of the folks who wanted to do it. Um, the the outputs of those aren't always as positive as we'd like them to be. So trying to make sure that we have positive outputs, and like it's mentioned before, having folks who are cool to work with, uh, you know, come on, come on, grab a shovel, start digging. <laughs> yeah, and go ahead, Tomalek. You know, I think what's interesting is when you're building something and you have a bunch of people come through uh, that are new to the process, the immediate feeling is, well, why did they do it this way? We should do it this other way. We should, we should, let's tear it all down and, re and rebuild it. And, and so the, um, the, the, one of the challenges, one of the challenges that we've sometimes run into is needing to explain why we are where we are and how we need to continue continue that way until we slowly iterate the the, the changes you know um there may be a moment when we restart but restarting it now is is not not viable and so what we need is is for there to be a really kind of well tempered process of having people coming in um, and, and so, but it's, it's doable. And I was hoping that somebody early on in that process would be here to talk about it, but you know, you can come in, you can, you can start to, to learn how to be the RFI documenter. You can come in, you can start to, to work on, on, on being a question manager or, or you know, there's all these ways, all these pr processes that you can start to learn how to be part of. And then, you know, you can start to, um, sort of have a, a an overall understanding of how the process works and then you can get onto the you know there's there's, this, there's these levels of, of 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 participation that i think are really fun and you should you should jump in with feet first yeah and i would recommend um signing up for some of the volunteering we may have eventually a room that's more uh tightly wound probably not open access but people that are actually interested in being in it being able to to look at the uh you know to the multi-view and listen to comms maybe even before they take one of those steps i will say that it will be um, pretty restricted and and, and we're pretty touchy about who's there. Uh, we'll quickly sort people out if they're giving us non-constructive feedback. <laughs> like, you know, like that's, that's the, you know, like it's a lot of people are working really hard and volunteering a lot of time. And I think that uh, what we found is opening this up in the past is, was not really great for their energy because uh, people who weren't working on it had opinions that weren't useful. And so, um, so the, uh, so I think that we're, you know, we're going to be, you know, we will probably open that back up and there may be some, uh, more limited, um, uh, access to that. So stay tuned, but I would sign up for the volunteer thing because it will, it'll be to people who signed up for that. It won't be just general access for, for quite some time. Uh, next question. Jesse Mills in San Francisco Bay area says, does office hours now own its own equipment as an official nonprofit? Uh, we own some of it. Um, some of it is owned by me. Um, I probably, uh, um, yeah, uh, there's about, there's tens of thousands of dollars here in the skin, the kit and the kit that I, that I bought over the last couple of years to get this off the ground. So, so we'll just, we'll just leave it at that. Um, so some of it's mine. Um, I haven't, I haven't officially donated it to, to office hours, but it's, you know, all those Mac minis and those kinds of things I just kind of bought organically before we were a nonprofit. And so those things are all still, still sitting in the system. Uh, we have had some, um, you know, we have a lot of stuff on lend, so it's not necessarily been donated to us. Um, uh, but the FSHDRs, so the, the, um, 
some of the, the black magic equipment and some of the other equipment has been you know lent to us um, a lot of the software licenses and so on and so forth have been lent to us too um, so that we're able to you know continue to make that work and some of it's been you know lent by the company some of it's been lent by uh, own I know you know so those types of things to make it to keep it going so it's been so a lot of things have been lent there's a couple things that are owned <laughs> but and and uh, but for the most part it's all it's all things that are lent to us to to keep it moving forward from me or from from other folks um, next question. Kai Cochran in Seattle up next. Can people observe the back end of the show being cut to see if they want to learn? They'd have to sign up for the volunteer group. So, um, and we are looking at making that open in a fairly limited way uh, in the future. So if they want to watch that in the background, the best way to, the best way to handle that is to sign up for the, in the volunteer area. So, and then we're going to, we are looking at ways to open that up so that people can actually see the back end. The best way to do that right now is become an RFI uh, documenter. Uh, that is the easiest way for you to get a kind of a view of everything that's going on because your job is to look at everything and list the things that are working and not working. Now, next question. Douglas Carmichael up next with what uh, would you ever think of updating the ingest nodes from M1 Mac minis to M2 or M2 Pro chips? Um, probably not anytime soon. And I'll be honest, the reason is we don't need it. <laughs> we're not, we're not get hitting it, hitting these uh, computers very hard. And especially with the SDI outputs, um, they just haven't, the load hasn't been high enough to make it worth it. Go ahead, Tlaloc. Yeah, I was uh, just echo exactly what you just said, Alex. I mean, it's, it, it, it seems to, they seem to, to be able to handle it. And we've actually moved from, um, uh, four outputs, uh, on, on most of them to uh, eight outputs on one of them, and we're going to probably do more of that. Um, and even that, I think, has been able to handle it. And JJ, I, I'm happy for you to correct me if that if you feel that that's an incorrect statement. No, no, it's uh, so the one that is updated we actually use least frequently, uh, <laughs> except when we have more than nine or ten panelists. Uh, so that one we have watched that it is. Um, it is, the instability that exists in the system, we can't pinpoint exactly what it is mm -hmm. uh, because we do have uh, some things that occasionally we reboot every couple of days. And having watched how folks are taking the same model and replicating it, and, th and that's um, something I, I, I'd want to really emphasize that folks do try to do hop into after hours because when, in sessions with L, who's been so gracious in, in granting his time, seeing how to build this using the systems we, we have been using, and trying it on your own, you know, trying to figure out how to build one of these things on your own using a single Mac Mini and figuring out, you know, the, the various iterations of how to build this uh, with four outputs or eight outputs. That doesn't seem to, seem to matter. It's more of the decision making that has to happen to the computers when uh, Isidore gets involved. And it's, but otherwise on its on their own, don't, and we're ain't broke. Don't fix it. Yeah, and we we moved from. Uh, we're about to move. We're just slowly doing it. We'll we'll get another eight channel card, probably not next week, but after NEB, we'll put another eight channel chart in. This has mostly to do with my finances. So so anyway, so so the um, but we'll put another eight channel eight channel uh, um, uh, card in. And the uh, what we're going to we had five Mac Minis that were doing four outputs each, so we could do up to twenty outputs. We're going to go down to three that could potentially do 24. But really what we're looking at is limiting to 16 pretty soon to where we won't really have the panel go over 16, but we'll have one spare that's sitting there. Now what that does is it also opens up two other Mac minis 
that already have cards in them. And so what one of the things we're looking at there is having those as playback machines. So if we want to do playback into the program and so on and so forth, we can put we can put things on to, onto those and, and have those work that way. So without without making other purchases, we're able to um, you know increase the density as as well. And I think I think actually increasing the density is going to end up making it more stable. And then we're also going to be able to um, you know open up more resources to do other things with the with the show. Uh, next question. Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart is interested in how much of the patch in Isadora would you estimate is code versus nodes? Uh, go ahead, uh, JJ. So, um, to some degree, like, no, what what is code today? That is to say, it's not visible to the human eye immediately upon uh, purview. Is some of the broadcasters, in fact, a lot of the broadcasters, percentage wise, I'd say there are now many more broadcasters that are little islands of information that broadcast to other things uh, in in unseeable paths um, to the human eye. But that said, uh, it makes it easier to look at, harder to figure out what's exactly going on inside, inside of the node. So I'd, I'd say around 40% right now is, is our broadcasters, the little, little islands that talk to other things. But then the nodes, uh, those nodes then make it really easy to track when you're trying to find an issue within, the, within our patch. Um, and and again, uh, speaking to Is Isadora, the, the things that that uh, L can teach us on how to make those things function well, and, and Tlaloc's work, Chad's work in the back end, uh, it's brilliant. Um, but yeah, I'd say about forty percent right now is uh, code broadcasters. Go Tlaloc. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking through this question. I think the way that I would separate it out is much of the of the control from the TD. Um, and control into mix effect <clears throat> is all still node based. Um, and then some of the database, is this the right way to say this? Yeah. So the database processing, who's in, who's asking questions, where are the, you know, wh how are they lined up in the outputs um, uh, and, and set up in, in the switcher for, pe for the TD to use? That's all being held in memory by uh, a fair amount of, of JavaScript um, inside of nodes. So what you can do is look at information going in and out of those, those little boxes of code and see where that might be for me. This is how I do it. See where that might be, you know, having an issue or coming out at the wrong moment or dropping to null at a moment when it shouldn't. And then and then it can be looked at inside of the code to see where that where that might happen. Um uh so that's that's kind of how I would say it. and and by percentage I would I mean, there's a lot of things that need to be said said to to mix effect. And so I would uh, probably say 50/50. Some something like that. Next question. Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas. How many of the downstream keys of the constellation are currently being used? I actually don't I think know. two, yeah. Oh, two? Mm -hmm. There you go, two downstream keys. Next question. Uh, Guy Cochran, Seattle, Washington. Could we use NDI Bridge to share Zoom Room 1080 pins for folks to experiment with bringing their feeds in vMix, Mimo Live, Webcast, CR8, OBS, etc.? to cut their own version of the show. You know, I'd, I'd be open to it, but it would have to be a whole nother team that prom that, that took that on. <laughs> like, like, well, I'm not going to have our team do it. <laughs> so, so that, so I think that that's the, that would be the big thing is if someone else wanted to take it on and it didn't have any impact, 
Uh, I'm 100% behind having other people do stuff and do make all the stuff available. What I will say is that between the volunteer team and the dev team, there is so much work for them to do. Um, making something more widely available, you know, if we took it from the raw um, and didn't affect anything. And the problem that I think that I would have with NDI right now is that the little Mac minis would have more trouble doing that, but we would have to, you know, if, but if we built a parallel path, maybe additional Mac minis um, with NDI and making those available somewhere in the network so that people could do that. I'm 100% behind it, but it would have to be an entirely independent team. And as soon as any day that we saw any instability, we would just turn it off, you know? So that'd be the only thing that I would say about that. Go ahead, JJ. Yeah, so uh, regarding the, the network load. So network load for NDI, drawing those all out currently, our, our network utilization, which, you know, occasionally folks in the in the Zoom room or on YouTube will say, hey, we're seeing stuttering. Uh, that, that, that that would add to the amount of the total load. Yeah. Which, if, we, if one could figure out a way to proxy that, <laughs> that's to say, take that, the network information or take the, the network load, offload it somehow by a bridge to something else that then takes those those egress paths I mean, out. That one might thing work, that, but... One thing we could do is just, I mean, for that type of thing is house it somewhere else. I mean, because it doesn't need to be, it just needs to be able to see the Zoom room, right? So it doesn't, we could have something, someone could build something that made this available that people could experiment with, with screen capture and, and all kinds of other things um, that, that was doing it, but from... Seattle, <laughs> you know, or, or, or Indiana or somewhere else, somewhere not here. Um, you know, so I think that that, that you know, we just don't want to, we're 100% behind people making other experiments and building their own shows and figuring those things out and using our, and this is one of the values of doing a show every day is that we are doing, that we have all these people coming together and they're producing something that is useful and we get to keep on experimenting with it and figuring that out. And so we would love for other people to find other ways to do that. And and I think that we could find a way for people, I mean, we want to control it a little bit, like not have everybody in there, you know, doing something. But but if we found, um, yeah, if, if, if we found people that were interested in being part of that and wanted to do it at another facility, to make it available that doesn't impact our system here. Uh, I'd love to do that. And, and so, so we can keep on talking about that, but it would just have to be a completely uh, separate team. The only thing we would have to do on our, the team that exists right now would be to give access to that one other group inside of our, inside of the, the meeting. And again, it just couldn't impact any of what's going on already. Um, next question. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. What quality of connection should the office hours crew people have? And are there understudies or overlords who will take over if someone gets disconnected? I think it's really 10 by 10 wired. Like, I, I don't think you need any more than that um, to do. You need to be able to see what you're doing there. You need to be able to interconnect. But I think that a 10 by 10 wired connection is probably uh, fine. And there's definitely, we definitely have people take over for other people all the time, even hosting like today. <laughs> so, so I think that we have a fair amount of resiliency as that, as that moves forward. And I would highly recommend uh, giving it a shot, especially starting, you know, with the RFI, starting with, you know, moving into, moving into it. But it's really worth seeing. I think that what we're, again, I don't think that necessarily what we're doing is the future, but I think it points towards a future that you can't find without what we're doing. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael, and he asked, Slaluk, what is your idea for the Office Hours 2.5 at Lab? Could it be another useful tool for recruiting new crew? And I'm, yeah, yeah. Along. So I think I forgot to raise my hand there. But um, I think that um, it might be a way for us to just, <clears throat> you know, 
look through things and push the buttons. It's not just about recruiting. It's also about getting getting into people's minds what's actually happening. I think it helps the panelists. I think it helps the crew. I think it helps the producers. Um, and it would jog loose questions for 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 the show to to be asked on the show that could be interesting to that to other folks. And so that you know that that's how those things seed and then grow. And and I think that would be a really good thing to do. If you don't mind, Alex, I'm going to jump back to a thing that from before, mm-hmm. real quick, and we can go to the next thing. Uh, ME3. <clears throat> remember, I didn't remember what ME3 was. ME3 right. uh, builds the 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 gallery, the smart yeah, the gallery that we see of the entire panel, and it overlays the bevels <clears throat> on top of that so that um, it has the same graphics and and we can see it. So it's great. Next question. It's the rounded corner machine. Peter Belvin, Houston, Texas. What could Isadora? Uh, could what Isadora is doing be done using Node Red? Uh, you could probably do lots of things using. There's probably lots of products that would do what Isadora did. Uh, we we really like Isadora. We have a lot of people that know it, and they are very supportive of what we do. So the chances of us changing would be almost zero. <laughs> you know, like right now, anytime soon, just because uh, we have inertia, and and I don't know whether Node Red would be able to. The problem is we know what Isadora can do and what it can't do opening something up to a new platform would just end up opening up a whole new, you know, just a another can of worms. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Talalik. I absolutely think it could it could do do that. Um and uh it it would be a, it would be probably the same kind of lift it was to build this one. <laughs> so, Which is a you know, lot. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so so, uh, so you know, if if you look at what the Isadora patch does and fi- and list out all of the uh, functions that it that it needs to do, and then you start building that out in Node-RED, then I think you can make the, all those things happen, because all you really need to have is is a logic engine and the ability to move OSC back and forth. Um, there's not actually any I mean, graphics being done by Isadora. We were using some graphics for um, to for some feedback to mm-hmm. operators, and we decided to pull those out, because it, it was... Uh, it was chipping away at some of our stability. So, you know, we're 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 essentially doing decision making and um uh packet delivery and reception. That's all it really is doing. Is information coming in that is there's a there's a decision about where that should go and then um and then uh there's a decision about and then there's a sort of a tracking of where people are in the meeting and that's pretty much all it's doing yeah the um and and i again i think that it's the it's what we know how to do now and it's been very effective and the team at trickatronics has made a huge huge difference for us l has really um helped a lot but but everyone mark and everyone there has been super uh supportive and uh you'll find that i once once we start down a path i tend to stop looking i've learned to not not to look around and just you know if unless we hit a roadblock that we just simply can't get around and the the idea of changing that now what, what i will say is if you know uh if you know that that platform i would highly recommend when we build this parallel system that we build at some point in time that you test all of those things. We would love to know what it does and and, and if there's things that it, it does that we don't. Uh, and finding ways to do those tests, those parallel systems that were suggested would be great. I just, um, I will say I'm hesitant to add any any load to our dev team, but I'm, but I'm very uh, positive about the idea of parallel teams building up and figuring out what this stuff takes. You know, next question. 
Chris Weidner in Lafayette, Indiana. And Chris, I hope I'm getting your commas right here. The test room lets me test out replicating the systems for Office Hours 2.0 work. With Zoom rooms with NDI and eCam, it wouldn't be impossible to do all this in the cloud, but I think the costs would be significant. Any estimates as to what a one-to-one replication might cost? Go, JJ. Uh, you can ask John Wallace. He's building something that's a much more pert design of what we've had. Uh, he'll he should be having that should have that up. I think this week Simon and John mentioned that they're going to do everything actually in Isadora. So it's a, it's an entirely different pipeline uh, that should make it actually much much less costly than the way we've been doing it, which is twelve PCs all playing out through OBS. So this will be a, a lot less costly. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And there's some of the innovation that we're hoping that happens based on, you know, showing us a better way to do it. And we might be able to find, you know, faster and uh, more effective ways to get that done. Go ahead, Tomlin. Through, J- through JJ's answer, I realized what actually was being asked. Um, and so um, I think I think having a test room has been really, really great. You know, we haven't, we don't have that running right now, but um, uh, it, there's a couple of different ways to, to, to make that happen. And I think um, uh, let's hope that Simon and them can, can build something really robust. Cause I think there was a lot of work that happened in the test room in the office hours test room for zoom ISO and that really got to understand how it works. And, and it's, it's actually hard to get a 12 person meeting yeah. as it, as it turns out. So yeah, and we're, and we're looking at making it um, a couple of different levels. So there's like a four-person meeting, eight-person meeting, a 12-person meeting, some test signals. Like we're kind of putting together ideas related to that. So stay tuned for that. Next question. Uh, next question comes to us from Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area. Could the block diagram graphic that was shown briefly in this show be posted to the Office Hours Global website and on Discord so that the current build info is freely shared? Go, JJ. Uh, so that's not current, as I mentioned, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I love posting stuff that's true and real. Uh, so it's not current. In fact, it's going to change. And and that's a little bit of the, the issue we run into is that occasionally documentation is requested for which it's not current. So, you know, the stuff that may, might be like the most recent thing I have on file is a year ago, uh, right. which is totally different. So, uh, yes. <laughs> But and putting be, and putting something yeah. reasonable inside of Discord is probably would probably happen quickly. Again, it's just putting something online or putting something on the website is more labor. <laughs> like you know, and 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 the conversations that'll generate is more labor. So um, if you're in Discord, uh, us putting you know we can take whatever we have here and put it put it up there. I'm I'm fine with that for whoever's listening in the back end. Um, but but I it just you know it's one of those things that we just want to make sure that you know we're really focused on trying to get stuff done. And so, um, you know, while we're totally having these conversations every once in a while, just to explain things as best we can and showing some of those things, um, we don't have a lot of time for documentation and a lot of time for support outside of this, other than we can put some stuff up in Discord, but things that are easy for us to do will happen, what we're happy to do, things that would start creating more labor um, or is something that because we're so busy at the moment, we're pretty resistant to, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> Next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette's back. Uh, how much on-site bandwidth are you using for Office Hours 2.0? Go ahead, JJ. Around 220 megs. It, it's a, it depends, but around 220 megs on a daily basis. 220 meg's. megs, yeah. Yeah, so it takes a lot. <laughs> Next question. Douglas Carmichael, what RME Digiface model is being used, and what are the note? What are the roles of the Digiface and the X thirty two rack units? Uh, the I, I don't know. I don't actually know what the model number is. Go ahead, Talak. 
Yeah, I'm not sure the model number either, but the um, isolated audio is being routed to the the X32 and is being, you know, when I'm super loud or super quiet, you know, it's being brought up to help with the the overall mix of the show. Go JJ. It's the Digiface Dante, and and we're still patching things into the X32 uh, using, as as mentioned, Maddie into into Dante, Dante, then X32, then when we're doing Zoom ISO, which isn't every time because occasionally to move folks around, like when Preto left, um, the the audio sync, we're constantly working on on some of those things again because we change the infrastructure every so often. Next question. Peter Belbin in Houston. What playback software is currently favored to allow a Mac to provide key fill SDI output, uh, for example, to replace the Casper CG? Go ahead, uh, JJ. Uh, this is, I don't know, but I don't know why we would replace what one of our members has has done. Again, if you guys look at the credits, uh, uh, what Tuomo built for us is awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, I mean, we may move away from the the blades that are there, but I think we would just keep on using Casper. It's just working so well. You know, and I'm a Mac person. <laughs> so, but but what Tuomo has done and being able to have the support that we have, I mean, a lot of this is is connected to the quality of the output, which has been great as well as the support that we have available to us um, with Tuomo being such a supportive uh, member, you know, we would, the chances, that's not going to be something that we're taking on anytime soon. Now, what we can use for some of these things and what you'll see with some of the playback systems is most likely going to be Softron and they've made software available to us in the past. And we want to thank them for that. And, and, but the reason for that is they tend bit. And so if we want to do outputs to HDR, which we've, done with other projects, um, 10 bit outputs from Softron. We know it works well and uh, lots of channels out of Softron. So that that's probably our, our lead uh, playback system, but we wouldn't use it to replace the day-to-day graphics. We'd use it for the play out that has to go out to HDR and SDR at the same time. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael, would you ever share the raw Isadora patch with the uh, Mukana API information removed for users to learn from? I, I think when it settles down, I think that I'm open to that. I think we, we just right now there's a lot of moving parts, and it would just what 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 we have to be clear of is that if we post something like that, that we're not necessarily going to support it. <laughs> like so, and and so I, I I you know like you know us putting something up doesn't bother me. We have to pull a couple things out specifically related to Makana and a couple other things. Once we pull that out, we would we can post it. You can just see it. But no one can ask us any questions about it. <laughs> like, you know, like it's it's like it's because it, there's a there's like years of questions that 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 putting that out will generate, and um, we just don't want to have our dev team spend time answering questions right now. Like, there's some point where we will, um, but but right now we're we're happy to keep talking about it, and we're seeing people continuing to think through that, uh, and we're having having these meetings to let people know where we're at. Um, but we're very conscious of of uh, our limited. Right now, we're very conscious of the limited uh, resources that we human resources that we have to produce what we're producing. So we're very protective of their time and energy. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael has what may be our last one. Uh, what is the role of the Beast Gaming and ME3 PCs connected to the A10 Mini? Where does the Mini's output go? I don't actually know. JJ, do you know what, what each one of those does? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, Need three PCs can mini. Oh, so I think I know what. It, so it's, it's, I think it's a reference to an earlier, earlier episode where we talked, described the the, the build itself, and 
uh, A10 minis. The A10 mini used to be, again, this kind of goes to documentation, a year ago, the A10 mini was how program was brought into this this meeting right here. So we used to have uh, program was brought in. It's one of the ways in which uh, those of you who are watching inside the Zoom room quiet theater, uh, that is an output directly from Zoom using SDI. So using a, a, a fast format return back so that folks can ask questions in Mukana that are immediate. Um, that used to be true. It's no longer true anymore. Beast is the PC that Alex built with Colleen's assistance. <laughs> we call it a Beast Link by Colleen. Um, the Beast Link, versus the Beast Link, uh, is what all the brains of this uh, operation run on. It, it's where Isadora lives. It's where uh, um, our communication for universe lives, uh, back to mix, mix Effect, and how our, our show functions, how we control it. There we go. Well, there you go. That's a little bit of an up update. We'll give you another update as we keep moving forward. Um, the, I just have to keep on underlining just how incredible the dev, dev team is. And the incredible stuff that they've produced in the last couple of years has just been astounding. And uh, we're going to keep on developing it. We're going to keep on making it better. We're going to keep on, you know, we, we have to get, so for instance, I'm doing all these HDR tests. Eventually, we have to talk to both of those switchers at the same time. You know, and so we have to make that work um, and be able to, you know, have kind of a dual system, I think, to, to make a lot of this stuff work, at least at some point. So there's, there's a lot of new things that we're going to be working on there. Uh, there's some updates to Zoom ISO that'll affect us, you know, down the road, or that we we hope to have some um, in the future that are going to help us, you know, do a bunch of other bits and pieces. We're working again with Trocatronic and SPX and and Universe and uh, Mix Effect, and they're all making adjustments uh, to allow what we're doing. And again, our our goal is that other people will take it and run with it. The, the people that are most immediate that could run with that is the people that are already on our dev team if they're interested in doing those kinds of things. Um, but but I we will eventually publish a lot of this stuff. And it's mostly, again, a labor problem for us as, a, as opposed to wanting to stay secret. We're happy to talk about a lot of the stuff. We're happy to post that image that we showed earlier. That's fine. Um, we want other people to look at it and go, well, I don't, you know, I think I can do this all with NDI. And if you can, then do it. <laughs> show it to us you know like so you know we'd love to people to prove that they could do absolutely everything that we're doing in the cloud prove that we're doing you can do absolutely everything that we're doing with ndi prove that we, you can do it. like all those things we are a hundred percent behind you proving that to us and showing that to us um and making making that happen so we'll, we'll try to make that easier as we go through the summer um, but we're super excited about it. Um, thank you, uh, thank you, thank you again to the dev team and uh, the product and the production teams. I mean, the production teams I and mean, people are just learning how to do this, you know. And and we're when you're learning how to do it inside of our production team, if you volunteer for it, you are you know you're out there and the bleeding edge. We don't have all the answers because no, we're the first ones to ever do this. <laughs> so so we're we're trying to figure that out. Um, but it'd be, we'd love to have you. Um, we traveled 137 the Tlaloc traversal, 137,000 miles. 220,000 kilometers, and that's uh, over a billion bananas for scale. <laughs> All right. Thanks again to the to the panelists. We can't do this without you. To the to the incredible producers asking all the great questions, and to the incredible production team and dev team that makes all of this happen. Uh, we'll have more updates for you in the next couple months. All right, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Now we're going to jump into after hours. I can't see. Oh, look at JJ. Good to see you this morning. Yeah, it's good to have you guys. Nice to be here. Thanks, Bill.